over on weedtv.com. And uh, we are now live, I think, on both platforms. We'll go here in a second. Um, hey, everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. This is episode 90. It's going to be a really special episode. Um, there's a, a gentleman with us named Breeder Steve, who I thought we'd never actually get a chance to talk to. He was kind of a, a, a phantom from overgrow.com way back in the day. And uh, he's, uh, he's here to join us. So we're super stoked to have him. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we also have with us is uh, Drew Lamb from Pyramid Pure Foods. Uh, he's joining us as well. He'll be talking about uh, what he does. Thank you for joining us. Hey, it's really cool to be here, especially for the debut on WeTV. Oh, yeah. We're, uh, we're dual streaming today. Uh, if this all goes well, we'll switch completely over next week. I just wanted to make sure we had a second backup copy of the recording um, before I totally relinquish control over to the other platform. Um, we also have Josh from Dutch Blooms. Hey guys, how's it going? Sorry, I was muted. Hey, no worries. We have, hey, a, Josh. Little, we have a little added announcement later on to uh, uh, to go with the, the what we had to announce last week. Um, Marty, uh, we have Marty as well. How's it going, Marty? How's it going? AP Meds. We got Mr. Green Jeans. Nice Marty. glass. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everybody, what's happening? Hey Breeder Steve, you and I go back to Hello. Overgrow. Yeah, man. <laughs> we had many, many fun conversations. We got um, Sweet. Uh, Roger from uh, I Love Growing Marijuana.com. Good evening, everybody. Enjoy the show. First night on Weed TV. How about that? Heck show yeah. number 90. Have to remember. All right. So um, thanks a lot for joining us, Breeder Steve. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what, you, what you do now? And then uh, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about, I know I first read about your, your uh, exploits on overgrow.com. You were the very first person to have anything written down about aquaponic cannabis. Um, your, your stuff was one of the things that helped uh, me get the, the dual roots down where it was along with, with meeting Vlad. And it was really kind of helped me quantify that as, as an idea. So, oh, Looks like we had an internet split. We'll be back. We'll get them back here in a second. We lost about half the panel. Yeah. We'll get them back. Let's see. We lost Josh. Mr. Green Jeans. There's Dot Josh. We lost Steve, of course. Let's see here. Steve, too. There's Mr. Green Jeans back. So. We got everybody with Breeder Steve back. Yeah. And now we lost Josh again. Whack-a-mole. There we, we go. Now we got everyone back. Okay. The internet does that sometimes. It's like whack-a-mole with guests. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what it looked like. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. So now that we got everyone yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you were, uh, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit about what you, you have a pretty amazing project, uh, going on down in Columbia. And then I'd love for to hear about your early days of, uh, your early aquaponic stuff. Cause you're by far the earliest documented person, uh, as far as anything in writing about aquaponic cannabis growing when I'm super, uh, just astounded that we were able to find you and have you on the show. So thank you again for coming on. No, it's really my pleasure. I mean, I've been uh, a loud advocate of aquaponic growing for a long time because, you know, once you do it right, you're sold. It really is uh, the cleanest, smoothest puff you're ever going to grow. And 
just burns with a white ash. So I just really, I was an outdoor grower for about five years for growing personal back before I had a place to hang a light. And then once I got a place to having a light, I immediately built an aquaponic system. And then that was in like 1994. And I was just in love with it you know it was really so much fun and i thought nobody spends as much time staring at the reservoir as i would <laughs> and uh, later i built a, a little business in Portie and built aquaponic systems there and turned on heady people into um their own because a lot of growers would really trade in their own bud to get some off they trade two for one to get some aquaponic if you know what i mean they really like and so as i showed people to do it i called the system i built their uh, bioponic system we had uh, a hybrid would be basically a table with a pond liner so it would be two and a half feet deep and the top was plastic mesh pots that I'd filled in after I hung two ropes, which made four tails down to the bottom of the, the table. And there would be misters hung under the table and then uh, spaghetti tubes on top of the rocks that uh, they would feed off the return. Every time the return sump kicked on, that would push water back to the aquarium through PVC with a ton of holes drilled into it. So it just churned the aquarium when the water went back in. And then every 20 minutes or so, the timer would kick on to run a pump from the aquarium to blast misters under the tabletop. So it was kind of a hybrid aquaponic aeroponic system in the flowering side. And that that table would drain out through Rubbermaid buckets I called mother marshes to they would be on maybe a four inch riser and then there'd be one mother marsh or bucket on the floor that had two sump pumps as returns and the one sump would be set higher than the other with the float switches so you'd had the redundancy built in there um it was just incredible how the roots would run down the wet ropes it'd be like big carrots going down four tails so under I'd have 36 pots under a thousand watt, a four by four area. And they would have as much roots under every baseball bat bud as like a seven gallon pot. It was just stupid. And, the, and it still tasted incredible. Like even though people would look at it and be like, those are just huge buds. How can you do that aquaponic? It's not, it's not that you need 2000 parts per million. It's just that they need constantly available nutrients so it doesn't have to be in a high concentration it just has to be constantly available and it just blew my mind how well it grew and i just couldn't shut up about teaching people to do it <laughs> so, yeah, that's why we're all here yep. that's <laughs> right i'm glad it's, and that was a long time ago you know when you think about that that was that was a long time ago that was the 90s and to see that it's caught on it's still really who's doing it kind of thing like hardly anybody right so but it's great to see it really catching on because it's just a so flavorful way to grow and it's so kind to the environment you never i never had to drain a reservoir i had for three years until i moved one time like i just 
there's a float there, uh, that let water in when the aquarium went down a quarter of the way, which is what it took to fill with. And then so if it ever went below a quarter, the float just dropped like from a horse trough, just those red and black plastic. Right. And it was hooked up to a hose. We never drain the res you know for three years it just topped itself up it was really a hoot i would have people get, get a street they would be sitting there all stoned staring at the aquarium and they'd be like well tell me about it what what does it eat you know what do you feed the fish and i'd be like oh whatever we're having and i just toss a cheeseburger in the res <laughs> and the look on their faces like the writers from red eye or high times or whoever is their jaws would just hit their chest it's like you just threw a cheeseburger in your reservoir and a timer there on flip it will be gone. That's hilarious. Be gone. You know? <laughs> just a riot. Yeah, it was a total riot. You normally I found feed any food like was in food. I had I was very fortunate in that I was next door to an aquarium wholesaler, like an importer of fish. So they had two floors of guppies and, and they would come over get me bring me a bucket of goldfish and we would pour it in the res and just watch it disappear all the awesome apart in no time <laughs> it was too funny that's great <laughs> i think uh silver arm had a bunch of oscars too steve steve too yeah we had a i actually had a Did bunch of I had um, Oscars actually breeding in the aquaponics greenhouse in Colorado. I have a video of the, the th uh, two males like locking jaws and spinning around. And then it's cool because they pair off and then they'll, they're really good parents. They'll actually have the, they'll form like an arc and protect the babies and fend off any uh, other fish that come around. That's, That's really something. Yeah. <laughs> For being such a mean fish, they're really good parents. I found a few of my clients would try switching foods or flake foods if they ever felt it's very more pot tasted and smelled like fish food which is not pretty like the dry pellets they just horrible but if you gave them live food or frozen food gold right but the pellets you look on the ingredients of the fish food and it looks like a bag of fertilizer <laughs> but the uh but it really has a stinky smell when you open like fish flakes or something for your goldfish. Think how bad the smell because your pot just absorbs whatever's, whatever it's in. That's why it's so good for phytoremediation, right? So the, uh, um, they would plant hemp around Chernobyl to remove you know, radioactivity or toxins, heavy metals, yeah. you pick up whatever it's in. So whatever you feed it is what's in your bud, right? So what were some of the challenges you ran into and, and how did you overcome them when you were first trying to grow in aquaponics? Temperature. That was the first thing you got to learn. <laughs> you can't keep the roots around like 22 to 24. If they get hotter than that, they start yellowing and getting messy. And the uh, same with the fungus gnats, if you have the open hydroton, so you learn to cover and plant through plastic and maybe wrap a little around the uh, baby, kind of seal the roots from the big difference too. Awesome. 
So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, some of the other projects you've done and then about what you got going on there in Colombia because uh, that's uh, where you're at right now. That's true. Well, most of the what I was better known for than aquaponics was developing some seed and did that for a while, a few years in Switzerland after sort of doing it as a hobby in Canada. For, and then I've taken a long time off to make wine in the Okanagan Valley and as waiting for regs to show up that were acceptable. Like when I went to Switzerland, it was legal to grow. You didn't need a light grow. There was no requirements. It was, it was just the way it's supposed to be. It was like growing tomatoes. So it was really hard when the first Canadian regs came out to look at, okay, I got to build a prison to grow the pot in. No, I don't think so. You know, and I really grow in overall wanted to wait until that was a possibility again. And I'd always wanted to grow in the tropics because I've kind of, you know, a little bit tired of the Afghanic Kush scene, you know, and I really love those high notes on the tropical thin leaf, delicious stuff that's just perfume. So I've always wanted to grow in the tropics. And now I've been able to have a few plants down here in Columbia. It's legal to have 20 plants for every person. And and that's there's no other restrictions it's not like if the neighbors can see it or if they're 10 feet tall there's there's no issue about it that way which is really something i respect about this country and and then their regs the first draft of their regulations came out and i had a look and thought these are brilliant this is the best i've seen it was like 12 pages long where compared to like 400 editors of the vegetable. You know, I would use rules. So I hear and co-founded a company. We were the first fully licensed one. And now we're setting up, you know, field farming, essentially commodity cannabinoids that we're literally growing in fields, but I'm raising it all on pond water. So the pond water in the dry season is remarkably green and full of algae. But right now is the rainy season and the water's a little um, diluted and you can tell by the season and the greenness of the plants. The plants are a little paler than they were in the dry season when the water was visibly green. So it's really, uh, it just to be able to flood fields with pond water and watch medical grass grow. That's awesome. Yeah, I like that too. I drink trying to do a farm in Canada, and he and I'm trying to. We're Steve and I are trying to convince him to do that, make a pond. And you know what? The, the, the whole living scenario. It's just a. It just works. It's living. You, know, you don't have to do a lot of math, and it's a lot, a lot to like measure what percent of this and that you have. You're a little more flexible on pH and things as well. And I've just, I just, you know, spiritually attached to it and empirically attached to it. Like it just makes sense to me to do it. And, uh, and I get such a, I can't believe my reservoir now is have caimans in them and all you know, tropical beasts. And it's just hilarious. It's like, I'm finally using crocodile shit to grow it. You know, That's so cool. <laughs> so I recently, uh, I understand you recently did like a, a, a million seed seed sift or something like that. You want to talk about million that? Million seed search, I'm calling yeah. it. But we have, uh, 
a window of opportunity here when you have a license. It's called the Fuente Semi, the Fallon McLear, the source of seed, and that expires in December. So I just put out a call out or a tender really like either I'll buy your seed wholesale or you can send me some, but I need like a minimum of 75 each. And I will put them all in a massive selection crop. I've got two agronomists that are going to do, you know, strain rip with, you know, how, how tall they have blades on every leaf, every, all the base on the metrics and photos and whatnot. So, and then we'll be sending it all to the lab. So the people that are donating seed are invited for a free tour, come and come for a trip and check it out. See, and I'm really trying to build up the entire world collection. So it's going to be just a gas I'm having, getting all the seeds. People are sending them in the mail. I'm getting three or four envelopes a week from around the world, from Nigeria, India, Australia, all over Canada, and uh, even Colombia. So it's there's so much possibility because I'm three degrees off the equator. I can grow virtually any trees. And I found from personal patch that even in the dry season, I can finish any indicas too, really, really well. So there, it's uh, two seasons basically, but we can plant all year round. So we're on a cycle of, um, we're just starting to, we're going to plant five or six plants in the field every week. I'm starting a lot more seed than that, but obviously I don't finish every plant. Like if I... If I plant a million seeds, I might only finish a quarter of them, you know? Maybe even 10% of them, because I'll thin them out as they go. But, uh, and after that, that's what we own now is about 3,000 acres worth so and that's flat fertile peas in our region because they all want to be close to the cities with nice restaurants and i'm in the prairies really where it's quite remote the locals call it the jungle but it's it reminds me i would think of like a green texas or something every buckles and horse trucks and country city whenever i have to be there and when i come down here it's beautiful I've had a couple of my friends visit down there and say the same thing that it's you know just a, a beautiful area, but it's it's a lot different than most of what we have here. Well, that's right, and that's a bit of half the challenge is always trying something new, you know. And the in Canada, there is no option to grow outdoors yet, so it's either indoors or greenhouse. And the last thing I want to use spend my days in a windowless box to gr grow my pot under beeping lights and everything i gotta open it you know it's like it's over really the canadian regs so down here i can so developing to use in this region taking silos of those seeds and planting them with a seed drill like corn and i was hoping within about three years two to three years to planting harvesting and processing about meters Oh, 
Okay, I'll say something since nobody else knows. That's pretty awesome. You know, you got that going on down there. I love the, the fact that you can grow year round. I I can. Grow. I want to drive the price of cannabinoids down to the. What you said? What? Sorry, go ahead. You said what? I couldn't understand you, Steve. Steve. I said, go ahead. I, I think I cut you off there. Oh, no, I would just. Sorry. No, I, I, I think really I cut, cut you off. off. No. Um, so, um, what do you recommend for pollen um, preservation? So, do you, how do you preserve your pollen for your breeding stock? Or do you just pollinate? You know right what? Though, in a long time, I did that in 2001, I believe, 2002. And I, I don't remember the name of it, but it's like a glass flask, like it's like a like a pot for, but it's out of glass and there's top with another that sits on it, and then it has a little vacuum pump off of it. So we would put test tube stand, and we would try with um, dried rice with dried, you know. Big flour, used dried flour, and then I tried some capped under vacuum in the fridge. The best way I could keep it. What um? Have you noticed, ever seen anything strange? Like uh, there was the Frisian duck foot back in the day. Have you seen any other particularly noteworthy or bizarre, oddball strains in your breeding? You're working with so many different varieties. Well, not lately, but the the most interesting um, ever found something I'd bred. It was out of some incredible bag seed from Vancouver in the 90s, and it was oh, probably like 95 or 96, and it was Ryan's killer, and I had a girl that was renting a room from here, and she was had a beeper and was selling eights around town, and she usually had this was $40, but then twice a year, this Ryan's Killer Key $5. Nobody charged more than 40 for an eighth of anything. So it was it's all right, just try it. So I tried some, and the, there happened to be, and I was like, okay, it's really good. And I had a very unique, had a very sandalwood flavor in that. And out of everybody in the house, I think they found six seeds in total. There was just a few in it. And I planted the six seeds, all, all six sprouted, all six were female, and they grew like a vine. Like they had really bendy, you could train them on the fence horizontally, like they were really flexible. They the leaf and it had those same florets. like so pretty the plant, no pill pulling fall. You want to try and 
recreate that, even though I didn't do it the first time around. I have some ideas about what I think the guy was doing, and I'm going to try that out because I think it'll be a game changer if we can have this outdoor on any terrain, you know, that in any areas where there's hemp outside, you know, grow for extracts, but they're still cutting yield dramatically because they've all got CD pot. I know guys growing around areas in Canada with a lot of got no choice, but to sift it and then make extract. And if it could all be seedless, that's for sense the idea. <coughs> awesome. <clears throat> So tell us a little bit about your seed company you had. You ran a, a seed company for quite a while. Yes, Spice of Life Seeds. That was like 2003, really. I'm sure you, know, I'm sure you could name a bunch of the strains. I, I named them all. <laughs> sweet crosses, but they weren't all obviously strains. But I, I did stabilize uh, Sweet 2-3 to the point of truly being homogenous, you know, homozygous. That was a, a fun one. And that was three times back crossed or cubed to grapefruit. And it was pretty darn tight how, and I've actually got some growing in the greenhouse right now. Be fun to, fun to see how it turns out at three degrees. <laughs> nice. Very cool. So what are the other challenges that you've noticed uh, growing in the tropics aside from probably the heat and having to do with the, the split, the split greenhouses with the, the split level at the top? The, um, it's pretty early to say for the greenhouses, but we're really just using the greenhouses for propagation and all the production and flowering for testing will all be done in the field. Um, the next phase of greenhouse I'm building is tight breeding rooms so I can have pollination space um, without seeding everything around me. The main problem, I think, well, there's a, <laughs> there's lots of problems, but the, I don't worry the bugs. Like I've seen a few spider mites on plants outside, but I've never sprayed them for anything as I've done over the last year. But I did put together a little pepper garlic spray that I've started putting in veg space because that because it's uh, all year round, if you're vegging anything photoperiod sensitive, you've gone all night, which attract a lot of bugs. So we've had to put screens on the greenhouses because they were open walls, like the walls would roll up and down. But I put screens on them to, you know, slow down the onslaught of creatures in the night that were coming in to have a look. Find just as many predators as problems. So it's it's uh, more amusing than anything. The one, the scariest thing in the personal veg in the last week or two was a giant tarantula. So I'm thinking fast and you don't wear, you don't want to wear flip-flops in there anymore. You're sort of wearing the boots every day again. Because <laughs> spider mites are one thing, but tarantulas are another. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. Any other oh, there's a lot of, there's, Go ahead. Any other challenges you've noticed, uh, you know, with the light cycle or um, uh, the higher humidity well, or anything? 
Well, obviously, for some streams, the wet seasons are a real challenge, and and the humidity as well. But the um, light cycle view, who's an auto flower? Because you'll find some that on 24, they're just not staying in veg. Those are useless to me down here because I really have to I have to acclimatize varieties that'll produce what I want in this climate. And the local varieties maybe aren't resinous enough or there's no there's no tropical CBD varieties, for example. Um, so that's going to take at least three generations. So basically a year, year and a half, we'll have have some results, hopefully, on um, you know, modern tropical varieties that are decent yielding for commodity cannabinoid crops because I really want to plant it like corn. I don't want to be making cuttings to plant under lights in the field unless it's for research, you know, unless I'm different things. But for the actual production crops, I have to acclimatize things that I can just plant yield from seed and have it come up like corn. And that's really the... For me, I want to make seed. You know, I want it to be affordable for the first world to get a bottle of tincture and not have a tree bill. You know, that's cool. Yep. So, what which um, cannabinoids are you working on isolating or doing combinations of? We're focused on CBD. Well, the number one. THC, sin, and a moderate amount of CBD. Tons of people are doing. I've got one of the larger, probably the world to grow tea right now. Because if I saw Reuters article recently in the last week, I think that said Colombia has got the 34 percent from the UN for medicinal cannabis largest place. I, I've got the largest potential planet right now. I'm not, it's not coming down this week, but literally licensed THC of anybody in the world right now. So it's that, and I can see the CBN post-harvest quite easily. So I'm not worried about breeding plant. I can out a two-hour way to make it in the lab. Very cool. So are you doing um, strictly just isolates then, or are you doing any other products as well? We're real range. Um, and also we're sort of going to make to order as customers, you know, licensed importers from Australia and Europe, that whatever they want, we're willing to make to order. But uh, essentially I'm focused on... A fairly clear, full-spectrum alcohol extract with terpenes intact that's suitable for pens. I think for a lot of medicinal, medical conditions, people find immediate relief from vape pens. So that's sure and they want to make a pill because... We're doing clinical trials through uh, University Rosario in Bogota, and it's had our soluble one is the easiest to 
they're most confident doing these with so they do blinds. A breeder, Steve, uh, I'm control I'm so these yellow. rights are going to get a TH put on their any better. Yeah, you kind of, I think, uh, not, not, I, I don't want to offend you or anything, but you need to light somewhere, find out where it sounds good, because you're walking around, you're you're talking. No, to no, I'm sitting. It's going room, I've been room. sitting in the same place. I've been sitting in the same place the entire time. I've just put a chair out in the yard. Oh, um, wow. Oh, no, okay. no, it's just the uh, internet connection's a little bit choppy. That's okay, a, okay. It okay. goes in and out. It goes from you can hear you real good to you can't understand anything, and we were, were really wanting to hear the information. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, that's too bad. Sorry, no, you brought it up because uh, it's sad. So I'm sorry, um, you're working with a university? Anyway, university? so yeah, as far as what, what kind of medicine we're going to make it, go uh, ahead. Yeah, it, it cut out right when you were talking about working with a, a university. Right. So We're one of the studies we're going to start with is for rheumatoid arthritis. So we'll use 5,000 pixels. That's totally not my department. I'm really interested in breeding cannabis for different goals and really the sensory part of it, picking out my favorite terpene profiles. It's all about for me is a really I, I get off on the and uh, we will be able to export terpenes anywhere in the world of course lots to do that's a good I like that that's good you're so you're you're just zeroed in on what you do and that you know uh, we've had a couple guests like that that no that's not what I do I do this and I'm going to deliver terpenes to the world so we have a um uh, it's what what are you using steam separation or are you using a different method? Steam separation. Right now we're just looking at the alcohol system, and I think we'll start with something basic like that. We've we're looking even at doing for terpenes, alcohol for cannabinoids, and then CO2 again to get the residual alcohol and oil out of the out of the mass. So there's uh, there's lots of ways to go, and we haven't totally signed off on everything we're doing. So it's almost premature me to stay. Oh, interesting. Very cool. So um, is there anything particularly unique about um, uh, products in Colombia? I know uh, always in the tropics you can find Charas or um, uh, whatever the local name is. Yeah, I have, you know, I've had some fantastic in hash in the past. I don't have any at the moment, unfortunately, but I... Got some lovely flower 
my own given. There's also America doing fabulous extracts of every sort. So I, uh, I'm very fortunate to have a good line on beautiful hydrocarbon extracts and distillate pens. So I've got pretty much the same quality I'd have anywhere in North America to puff while I'm getting started, which is a godsend, really. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So, um, does anyone else have any other questions? What other questions do you guys have? Go ahead, Marty. Oh, I, th I think he answered pretty much all the ones that I have for him. And, uh, you know, it was great to hear about, you know, like, I think your your breeding project or your seed project. What, what did you call that again? The million, some about million seeds or something? The million seeds, sir. Million seeds, sir. Yeah, the Instagram, I think. Yeah. And I think you're speaking. So, yeah, what is, you know. A lot of time over there, I see him nodding his head a lot going, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, when you get into the breeding stuff, I can see Mr. Green Jeans. His head starts going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's listening to rap music. Mr. Green Jeans, anybody else have any questions? All right. Well, he's trying to unmute him. Oh, have you? Um, I have a question. Have you had a? Uh, Steve, unmute Mr. Green Jeans. I see him trying to unmute his mic. Oh, I got it. I got it. Oh, there you go. Okay. No, I was, I was, I was, I am just curious in general about the whole, uh, you know, being that close to the equator and everything and the effect of the, of the day length and, and what goes on well, there. I mean, it's flower. I mean, just, I want to hear you expand it's a little bit on that. as soon as you put it outside, you know. Just flowers immediately. It's just 12, 12. Well, just picture it's it's uh, outside is oh, that's it. So unless you're growing equatorials, mm -hmm. which are I call them like dailings, right? Yeah. So th those I've tried in the last year have taken anywhere like overall strains from three months to nine months. Nine months you can plant it outside on twelve. It still takes, but it's eight feet. Uh, but the yeah. uh, indicas. You, you stick out an indica seed and it's, sure. a, it's a Flowers pogo stick. Right away. It's a it's pogo so stick, yeah. right? Yeah. So you've got to, uh, those are the daylight sensitive ones, right? Sure. You know, so I was we thinking, put those about, under about, lights to get up and then it's out of switch and they're on 12 12. So yeah. it's really, uh, you, can, you can plant outside for harvesting every day. Mm hmm. What about what about the idea of creating a, a long season auto flower and or a, an well, auto flower that grew really large like a, a tree auto flower somehow combining well the that's genetic. essentially that's essentially what they are that oops shit oops sorry pardon well, my language. That, that's what a lot of was, the, um, the trop the equatorial strains are basically by default. Yeah, I think that's sure. what he was about to say. That's what the equatorial ones yeah. he was talking about are. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. We'll get really back and the trumpets, what I keep, you know, we keep teaching about doing the shorter photo periods with the equatorial type genetics with the sativas, you know, is to just use that photo period so you can get them flowered and finished in a reasonable amount of time. 
and yeah, that's natural. It's natural. It's more natural. Yeah. If you veg the crap out of them, boy, they're gonna grow forever. Well, you <laughs> just, yeah, you ask them for trouble as long as you want to, and then throw it outside and let it flower. Like, yeah, but if yes. you don't can't throw it outside, you gotta keep it under that. You know, you need it to finish. You know, in a reason. Some sativas will actually have like a minimum. Like even if you put them straight into flower, I noticed this in Jamaica. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the sativa, more sativa dominant. Uh, strains would uh, have like a minimum veg time. They they would ignore the fact that they were in flowering, even though the plants all around them were, you know, completely gone to flower. These guys would keep growing. That's why if you look in like the video on my channel of the um the field of flower, that there's a bunch. Some of them are taller than I am, and they're just starting to go to flower. And other ones are you know ready to harvest you know next week. Right. Yeah, it's all in the phenol. Yeah. yeah. There was yeah. what's that show with uh where they went to Jamaica um the the big youtubers what are they hunters hunters that's it when they went down there too they talked about that a little bit too when they went remember they went through that big field and they had like some of them really tall and real short and you know they talked about that too some of them had like a minimum like like they would just grow this tall and flower like no matter what they would do that other ones would be you know like you're saying pogo sticks like he was saying before you know would do that so that you know pretty cool stuff Hey, Zach. Yeah. Oh, excellent. You made it back. I don't know what happened. Just cut out again. Uh, that's okay. No, we're all good. In the middle of nowhere. The uh, photo period's effect on plants indoors and outs while you were gone. Yep. Yes. Yeah. The equatorials basically are auto flowers, is what I was saying. Is they anyway. just take a long time to finish. Right. Yeah. yeah. Long that's, season that's auto good. flowers is exactly yeah. what an equatorial is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if the times when I've tried to grow stuff like uh, Laosh and stuff like that indoors, if I used a longer day length, if that could have encouraged them uh, more to be hermaphrodites. If I had just started them at 12-12, would they have been That's more likely to possible. behave sexually? I wonder. Yeah, it's, because, uh, it's quite or, possible because that's... What, that was Laos and stuff. I don't. I don't still have those genetics. No, this was about fifteen but years. But they used to. But it's it's not necessarily what it is. They could, could have been these old. The what? what oh. Wild and crazy. What's that? I get. Oh, could have been Hermes. You guys all have along. a fantastic having me. Yeah, on. that's right. It could have been Hermes all along. Anyways, right? Maybe. But I was just that's thinking. I wonder. That's if, right. If if the day length, you know, but it, but it definitely didn't help him finish. <laughs> yeah, because I probably did start them under a longer day length for a little while, which case they probably sprang up and, you know, acted like trees right away. And I panicked and threw them in the flowering room right away. I'm sure I'm sure they didn't live that long under the right. under the long day length under the which would have been fluorescence, but still. I don't know. Yeah, they they were just, they were just unruly, anyways, huh? They were just like they were fence straddlers, and <laughs> they didn't want to play nice. <laughs> they just didn't want to be one sex That's or the cool. other. Yeah. I uh, I hope you find. <laughs> no, I saw. You know what? The worst the worst I've seen for hermaphrodism down here is the mango beach, where I've had like a lot of true hermaphrodites, where it's like literally one branch female, one branch. It's frustrating. You, 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 Not like a couple bananas, but like 
alternate sexes, like weird looking plants and plants. The, uh, of the uh, other, like Punta Roja uh, or Punta Rojo, uh, I haven't seen bad hermaphrodism the way I've seen in the mango biche. It's uh, the mango biche is almost like their early strain, which is the father one. Cool. Huh. <laughs> That's great. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, documenting all that you do and putting together all these information. Is the information from that million seed search going to be available publicly, or is that just an in-house thing you're doing? Absolutely. No, I'm going to post uh, like all the people that said seeds. I've promised them back. You know, I think I'm going to get to all post. Very cool. Awesome. Did that come through? Most of it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you oh, so much for, uh, for all your do and uh, and all your documentation and uh, all the you know posts and you know again you were the the first person that's posted anything about aquaponic cannabis and I appreciate you coming on and um, love to have you on again sometime soon maybe uh, a little bit later when you have maybe sometime during the daytime too and uh, see a little bit what you got going on. That would appreciate your appreciation. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Take Thank care. Thank you Night. so much. Anytime. Bye-bye. Awesome. Well, that was really cool. Yeah, I realized there was a time delay. You could tell sometimes we would say something, and then he would go, oh, you know, like. Oh, like it's just, well, yeah, it's, <laughs> in the, it's in the middle of nowhere, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Night, but, night, guys. Uh, sleep tight. Good night. Thank you. Good night, brother. Good night. Thanks for coming, Steve. Anytime. All right. Well, we also have with us uh, is uh, Mr. Drew Lamb. He is uh, from Pyramid Pure Foods, and they do all different kinds of cool stuff. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you tell us a little about what you do? Hey, you guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, have a project in Ashland, Oregon called – can you guys hear me all right? Yeah, one second. Uh, okay. Reader Steve, can you? Yeah, I'm just trying to here. Okay. <laughs> Story. <laughs> no, man, you're welcome to stick around. Yeah, please stick well, around. Yeah, just stick around. I can stick around, but I got to mute my mic and I haven't figured. There we go. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Okay, there we go. Yeah, that's better. All right. There we go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I have a, um, an urban aquaponics farm in uh, Ashland, Oregon, uh, called Pyramid Pure Foods, uh, located in a, in an old warehouse that uh, was the site of the Pyramid Juice Company, which used to make uh, organic juice starting back in the, the mid-70s. So I've been <clears throat> operating in there since uh, 2012. And I... Uh, uh, I primarily uh, produce microgreens and uh, basil and uh, shiso and mints for uh, local restaurants. So I'm in a unique position where there's a lot of uh, really nice restaurants close by. Uh, the warehouse is just a few blocks from downtown, and uh, it's a it's a tourist community, and uh, so it's it's a it's been a good spot. It's it's in a building that 
I've, I've managed. I also have a real estate company. So it's in a building that I've been in control of since about 2004. And uh, back in 2012, I, I approached my client because it was always hard to find a, an, an occupant for the building. And, and I told him I, I had an idea that I wanted to try out in there. And so, you know, he's done everything that he can to help me out and uh, give me a good deal and keep me going in there. But, you know, one of these days he's going to want to do something big on that place and uh, he'll doze my site and uh, build condos or something like that because we're so close to the city. But but I've been making the best of it in the meantime. Um, I'll just kind of back up a little bit about uh, my history. Um, you know, I, I was uh, born and raised in, in Southern Oregon and uh, my my uh, uh, family purchased some, some property out in rural West Medford back around uh, 1978. And, uh, you know, my, my father passed away in 76 and my dad was uh, to uh, Goldfit. My mother was to refer at a, a little and uh, it also used cannabis. And so we had a little organic farm, a little homestead out of the property, and uh, whereas steer chickens and and all crop, and we had greenhouses that were hydroponic, and uh, and then paid the bills. My my stepdad had an indoor grow operation. And so he produced cannabis with hydroponics, uh, totally inverse. And um, that was probably around 79, around 79 or 80. And I was pretty cool about the whole thing. I never talked about it. It's kind of weird talking about it even now. But I, I kept it all quiet down low. And I'd help him out whenever I could. I was curious about what he was doing and he was cool about things. Uh, he exposed me to to the operation, so so I knew what was going on. Help with making the new solution. Sometimes I'd help him weigh things out and baggy things up, and sometimes I'd go along with him on deals. <laughs> so I I had kind of a an, an unusual upbringing, and and so uh, you know you live in Southern Oregon or Northern California. <laughs> yeah. it's a relatively normal upbringing. <laughs> Marty and I have a lot in common. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, so, continue. So, so anyways, um, you know, one of the problems he was having was that he, he was getting spider mites on his plants, on his indoor grows. And, of course, he didn't want to spray them with pesticides. So he was uh, doing research and alternatives, and he had come across some work that, that a couple uh, uh, scientists had done. I think... I think they were out of UC Davis and they were, they were doing research on um, um, using uh, uh, predator mites to, to uh, 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 take, take care of spider mites. And so he contacted them. Uh, if I recall, he met with them. He got some uh, samples of their predator mites and instructions on how to cultivate them. And he started raising the predator mites on, bean plants and and then uh, 
and then treating treating his his plants with with the spider mites or with the predator mites, and and then he got pretty good at breeding them, and he started um, he started a company called Nature's Control, and he started selling um, organic uh, pest control, uh, good bugs to fight bad bugs. That was around yeah I think that was around 1980 when he launched that company. And, uh, I'd, I'd, uh, help out on the phones. I'd answer the phone. I, I was about, I was about 10 years old. And I, and I remember when he was giving me instructions on, you know, how to answer the phones and, and I had to get up to speed on everything. I did, I didn't know, I didn't know about all the mites that, that we were selling and how to use them and be able to answer questions. And people would call in and they'd want brochures and things like that. But I remember him telling me what to do and to not sound like a kid when I answered the phone. So, <laughs> so, uh, so here I am. I'm on the phones and sit, taking down information. This is way pre-internet sending out brochures and this kind of stuff. And I was, it, it, you know, at the time I was an expert on uh, uh, beneficial insects, you know, and there, there weren't that, there weren't a lot available at the time. And he would uh, he would advertise in organic gardening in high times. That, that's where most of the business would come from. And uh, you know that was pretty much the family business. He he went you know completely legit as far as business goes. You know just just with that. And uh, so th there was still some cannabis production going on, but but most of what was happening was was legitimate business. And then and and then he got into other kinds of um, uh, beneficial insects. You know. Uh, uh, ladybugs and praying mantises and pirate bugs and 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 all those things you guys know it all um and uh and my my for some of our listeners are, are people that have seen my youtube channel you'll know a lot of the bugs uh the the beneficial bug series and all that stuff i did on my youtube channel were, were bugs from nature's control which is now still a family business right drew yeah exactly um my youngest brother nathan owns that company now and they have a sister business too called ladybug indoor gardens and that's their retail gardening store but nature's control is still the 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 the, the main beneficial insect business the only thing that's really different now is that there's there's so many um uh labs now that that produce the insects that that nature's control doesn't need to cultivate their their own insects anymore where back in the day that's what we had to do and, and even uh, you know everything. Every, everything had to be had to be raised in the house. And some things are really hard. You know, like your your ladybugs are are uh, wild caught. Uh, you know, almost almost entirely. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Nathan owns that that business now. Is his? Uh, he's my half brother, and his dad passed away about four years ago. But prior to that, I had uh, put together a deal for uh, Nathan to acquire the business. And and to provide his dad with a with a, enough income to be able to retire and for Nathan to be able to live on the business, and um, and and then his dad passed away and you know Nathan Nathan owns it out right now, so um, so we we grew we grew up around this stuff, um, but I've always had a love for gardening, uh, especially producing flowers, and and then it was around. 2011 i really ramped up getting into food production and, and what inspired it was the the uh the meltdown of the nuclear power plants at uh, fukushima daiichi and you know i was following that pretty closely and and here in the pacific northwest we're, we're downwind you know during during world war ii uh uh 
the uh, Japanese had launched um, um, fire bombs up into the atmosphere that were carried over into the jet stream and uh, th their intent was to cause forest fires in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, you know, in, in, in some of these, they're, they're called Fuegos. They, they, uh, some of them came down in Southern Oregon. Uh, one landed down on uh, South Peach Street, Marty, uh, on a, on a vacant lot that's still there. And uh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, when this was happening, I, I knew straight away that, you know, especially after Unit Three detonated, and this big cloud of MOX fuel, plutonium, uranium weapons grade went up into the atmosphere, I knew straight away that we were going to start getting fallout from it. And you know, and and I and I and I knew it was going to come down. It was going to come down in the rain. It was going to come down in the snow, and you know, it was going to contaminate everything growing outside. And I started paying close attention to things like I, I knew, you know, from my research that it was going to show up in the milk supply first. And with within a week, I mean, we had rains and with, within a week, uh, local milk was throwing off um, 70 CPMs uh, on, on my Geiger counter when, you know, just background radiation was six CPMs. So it was radioactive. And so I, I just, you know, I realized I needed to really change the way that, that I live, but also, you know, kind of, kind of shift my, my, my life's focus, you know, what I was doing and really, you know, start to be aware of these, these environmental problems that we face and, and, and all the health issues that come along with that, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I remember Chernobyl, you know, back in 86 uh, and, and uh, that, that accident, you know, that, that uh, threw uh, contamination, uh, you know, all around the globe. And, and so uh, I, I decided to, to devote my life to sustainable agriculture oh. at that point. Sorry, my dog is barking. Hold on a minute. We love okay. dogs. All right, don't worry about it. Yeah, I've got, I've got a, a Rottweiler named Roxy. She's uh, seven and a half years oh. old. It's a good girl. That's enough. Um, so, so that's, that's when I decided to, to launch the, the aquaponics farm. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't much of a stretch to get into aquaponics, given that my family was involved in, you know, hyd hydroponic crop production and, and, and also raising tropical fish. And, I mean, this was something that we should have put together a, a long, long time ago. I, I'm really surprised that, that, that we hadn't actually. And so I started uh, messing around with that. And uh, I, I think my, yeah, my, my first system was uh, modeled after the designs from uh, uh, some guys up in uh, Portland. I think it was Portland Purple Water that had some of the, they had some, some poly barrel systems. I actually have a, a system from one of their designs that was built about, about six years ago. I've made a lot of modifications to it, but it still runs on my patio and still cranks out food year round. I still, I still keep that going. Um, but, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, what I have to share with everybody here is, uh, how not to do aquaponics and, uh, and, 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 and also, you know, some, may, maybe some, uh, advice on if you're going to try to make money, you know, growing, uh, growing crops with aquaponics, um, you, you know, I, I think that, you really haven't earned your stripes until you know you've killed a few hundred fish, <laughs> and uh, uh, I've uh, 
man, I we hear that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I screwed up in in so many ways. I think you know what what really messed me up was you know when I was you know trying to find my way and learn as much as I could. And I was, you know, looking around for examples to 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 model my operation after. And of course, at the time, I I ran across uh, Growing Power, uh, Will Allen's operation, and I ran across, uh, um, you know, these, these yeah. And and it was looking at that. It was really really cool what he was doing, and I was really fascinated with what what he was doing. I wanted to emulate that as much as possible. And and then and then uh, you know the other guys, uh, Sweetwater, I think they were called. They were they were inspired by by that as well, and they were trying to scale up um, uh, Will Allen's operation, and so I was I was really inspired by that, and I thought, well, well, hey, this is cool. What if I could build this whole thing? You know, I'm in this abandoned old warehouse, and I could build all this thing with by by recycling stuff, and so I I got. I got a, you know, I put the word out and a bunch of my buddies started donating lumber. And I had, I have a friend who owns a concrete construction company and he had, he invited me out to his form yard and I piled up all this stuff. And then I had another buddy who was a, a construction contractor and he'd been warehousing all kinds of lumber to build his dream home. And, and he got, he was in, in the, the, the economy was in the shitter and he didn't have any work and he was being evicted needed to get rid of all the lumber so he gave me all the lumber and then uh and then he committed suicide i'm sorry sorry to bring that into it but um he he made a huge donation to my operation and then he went and he uh put his put his head on the train tracks up in eugene and it was just a pretty desperate situation if you were a a, a construction contractor around here at the time and uh and I, I, I wish I'd known how, how troubled he was. I had, I had no idea, but, um, but anyways, and then, um, and then I made some contacts with, um, with a local, uh, micro distillery and those, those guys, uh, needed to get rid of, they, they just get all these, uh, uh, IBC containers and poly barrel containers. And, and I was able to get these really cheap cause they just wanted, they just wanted to get rid of them. And, and they were super clean. They'd had organic alcohol in them and and organic wine and things like that and so i was able to score some of those and then i have i have another buddy that that deals in uh military surplus and and i was able to get uh containers from him that that uh were these in incredible fiberglass like like uh 300 gallon fiberglass containers that had been made by boeing and they still had stickers on them. They, they, the government uh, uh, purchased them from Boeing for almost uh, $900 a piece. And, and uh, you know, and I just got a bunch of these things for free and, and was able to, to, to repurpose them. And so, so I started building my system with all these things that, that I had. And, uh, and, and then I, I had, you know, and, and I had another buddy who was a, a, an unemployed construction contractor. And so I hired him to help me uh, start putting things together. And so, uh, you know, initially we modeled things very heavily after uh, Growing Power and Sweetwater. And, and then I started realizing that I might have really screwed up when I started to watch some of the, the later videos coming out of Sweetwater. I'm sure some of you guys have seen them, you know, where they've got they've got workers in there and they've got little mini shop vacs and they're shop vacuuming fish poop out of their troughs. And, uh, 
and then they're trying to create microclimates within their their massive uh, warehouse that they were in. It had really really high ceilings, and everything was framed up out of wood and pond liner and things like that. And and and, and then I you know and then I noticed the video where they'd rolled out a, a bunch of ladybugs and and they weren't handling them properly. They were just kind of being really rough and showing them off by rubbing them around and. Uh, um, and then I saw another video. I can't, I can't remember the guy's name now, but, but I remember he was just inundated in paperwork, you know, and he was complaining, you know, if I get through all this paperwork, cause I think he'd signed up for all these government grants and whatnot. If I get through all this paperwork, you know, I could get to farming. And that's when I, I, I really started to get suspicious, you know, like, wow, you know, this, this, you know, might be, the, might be the wrong track here, you know, because this is, you know, you got to put your work, you, you got to put your work into your farm. You, you can't, you can't, you can't manage it from your desk and, and you, you got to get out there. And so I started put, putting these things together and looking at that and then looking at Will Allen's operation and realizing that he was operating with so many volunteers and, and, uh, and thinking that I might've screwed up, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the kind of guy that goes, you know, that signs up for grants and government handouts and that sort of thing. It's got to turn a profit period. That, that's just it. And, and then um, about two years into it, you know, my systems really started to fail. You know, things were the, 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 um, the media beds and, and these media beds are massive, you know, tons and tons of, of rock in them. They're 18 inches deep and they were starting to clog up with, with uh, fish poop and starting to have flow problems and the siphons st stop working correctly. And, and all this, and uh, um, and then and then the the tanks that I'd fabricated out of wood with pond liner really weren't designed in such a way to carry the waste out of them. So waste was starting to build up, you know, within the tanks. And then sometimes if the light hit them, you know, the the waste would start to bubble up, and you'd get little little gas explosions coming up out of the fish poop, and you know, and started started to have these you know these these problems. And and so that's that's when I had to start pivoting and redesigning systems um you know i'm at i'm at a point now where you know i'm really i'm really big on filtration everything has to be filtered you know i like to have um um one of my fa my favorite system has a a, a swirl filter and then it's got a uh, it goes through it through another filter that's a, a series of, of of plates and then it goes into a degassing tank and, and then it goes into media bed you know, and then off, off from there. And, uh, and it, I, I like that, that system's been a, a really good solid system. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but I'm, I'm getting to the point where I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm trying to get completely away from media beds altogether. All and, and I'm, I, you know, and it's, uh, uh, one of those things it's, it's been, it's been a hard decision to make. I'm getting more into uh, vertical production. Um, and then, um, but the problem I have with the media beds is all the stuff that goes on inside of the media beds and all the labor that's involved in cleaning them out. Even after you're, you've done a lot of filtration, um, you know, you tend to get fungus gnats and thrips and these sorts of things in there. And, and, uh, and so I've been, you know, trying to get away from that as, as much as possible. So the next, the next iteration of my, of my farm will have very little, if any, media bed what whatsoever except you know when it when it comes to dual root zone stuff and you know and i have to say that 
you know, uh, 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 Steve really turned me on to that. You know, when I, I picked up your videos um, from Aquaponics Source, you know, a while back, and 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 it was like that that aha moment. And and what what I think is cool when you're doing that dual root zone is you could have a different biosphere in there too that you can't have in the media bed. You know, where you got this thing flooding and draining, you got that little dry zone in there, but you know, it might not be the the happiest environment for 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 say uh, uh, nematodes, predatory nematodes. And, and, you know, and that's, that's what I like about having that, that media layer in there is that, you know, you, you could have your, your beneficial pest control down there in that root zone as like a barrier. And that's, that's really something to think about as far as integrated pest management goes. So if you're going to, if you're going to do media beds, <laughs> I'm really pro dual root zone type, type of thing. Um, uh, just from that standpoint. Um, I think. I think that one what is important to say right here though is the reason you're going the direction you're going is because you're going greens, microgreens and and you know yeah yeah such like that. Uh, if you're, yeah. you're not growing tomatoes, you know, you're th that's your business is microgreens. So you can go vertical. It's the dual root zone is not as important to you. Well, you know, I, well, I, I, you know, I think dual root zones really important because you well, know. With, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it that way. But yeah, go yeah, on. And, and yeah, and with with tomatoes, I I love doing dual root zone tomatoes. I like I, I do it with cannabis, and peppers. You know, I, I think it's great. But and I and I think it's important because I mean you've got all all the all the benefits of of the of the dual root zone. You know, as far as your your uh, your your nutrients go and and you know, and making sure that you're covered, you've got all your bases covered with the nutrients, but from a, from a pest control standpoint, I think it's really important too. So I, I think that, you know, you see like you get on Murray Hallam's site, you know, and you see these guys building out these massive greenhouses with all these media beds. And it, it scares the hell out of me when I see that. And I think, Oh my God, you know, and the, How, what would they do if they got root aphids? yeah lots of humidity so much humidity from all those beds yeah 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 but uh, steve i mean you've totally they nailed would cry. It. that's what they would do they yeah would cry. They, they would cry and 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 throw their hands up in the air and yes. Go, I, yes. I don't know what to do and they we stop their tanks with tears so we had that same problem in the media beds in the showroom at aquaponics source at one point someone introduced a really vicious variety uh, by accident you know just randomly one of the people waltzing through the place um spread it to the showroom or that or the lady that was taking care of the showroom brought it in on one of the herbs that she bought at the nursery oh, i was growing everything from seed she brought some stuff in. anyways oh so, um, so we had these vicious root aphid and what we ended up doing was uh, we ended up introducing about three different types of beneficial nematodes and we found one that actually would totally survive in the media beds uh, and um, oh, that ended wow. up worked, working really well. Do you uh, remember the variety? Uh, I have a whole, I have, so I have a big chart that I put together and I'm going to be releasing. Of course you do. Later. Sweet. It's going to be released uh, publicly later in the year. Along with, <laughs> it's like a part of like a broader um, suggested IPM uh, list for, for everyone. Um, the, I guess at some point they're going to be starting to regulate us. So uh, it's, it's a really cool list I've been working on. It's not finished yet. Um, I'm still adding other states, white lists and stuff, but um the beneficial insects uh, things done. So if anyone ever has a question, shoot me an email. I can answer you, your question, but I will be doing a presentation later in the year on that specific topic at, at the for the Aquaponics Association. Definitely looking forward to it. And uh, 
you know, and I, I think that we're, we're on the right track then, you know, as, as, as that goes, because I, I do think it's important, you know, with some types of crops, you know, flowering crops, especially where, where you're, you're using media bed in a way, but, but I think, you know, blending it with the dual root zone, it, it just completely um, expands your ecosystem. Okay. So even if you're a commercial grower, like, okay, for instance, Ouroboros, they have about 40% of the production is media beds and 60% is the rafts. And it works really good for hybridizing that mineralization, just like you're saying. But he also has a bunch of little tiny um, beneficial shrimps, like fairy shrimps or scud shrimps. They're not the kind that eat the roots of the plants. They're just detrivores. And they have, there's probably, you know, 8 billion of them in the media beds along with the worms. I mean, you stick your hand in and your, your hands are just covered in the worms and the, and, and the thing. And there's no, there's no muck. There's no fish waste. There's no way, you know, nothing. It's just clear, it's broken clean. Down. It's all broken down immediately. Yeah. That's awesome. The other thing that too is um, uh, we've been doing work too with uh, the lactobacillus. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, actually, Joe Pate was the guy down in Kentucky State did a really big study on that with as well with the lactobacillus showing how not only did it increase the plant growth, it increased fish growth rate by 15% um, because it increased the microbiome of the fish, uh, the fish's gut and made them pack on more fat. Uh, Incredible. Really cool. Wow. Lactobacillus is everywhere. Oh, yeah. That should be, yeah, pretty easy to get that going. Oh, yeah. It should be, yeah. Yeah, make, make your labs. Go check out uh, Chris Trump's his, uh, his channel. Uh, that's the other thing I was going to mention um, for beneficial insects. Uh, uh, Susan Wainwright Evans is actually going to be at the Science of Regenerative Aquaponic um, Cultivation Conference. <laughs> Josh and his long names for events. <laughs> um, <laughs> you need a few more words in there. I don't think that's long enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, Steve other, was egging uh, him on last week after the show. Steve was egging him on. He made it even longer. I think they added a central. <laughs> no, he wanted it. He wanted it to oh. be even longer. And I like. Oh man. Um, so the other thing is, um, so we're going to be throwing a do grows show uh, because Marty complained. Bay Area uh, Nug Throwdown. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Even though everyone else is going to call it Norcal. I'm glad you checked the map. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, it's I appreciate now. that you checked the map. That's good. <laughs> it's important to pay into attention to the clarifying it, 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 uh, all of our, all of our All of our listeners, it'll be just outside of Half Moon Bay. Um, the details of the exact location will be released uh, closer to the event, uh, only to ticket holders. Um, it's not open to the public. It's strictly for you know, people from the show, uh, people from the DGC. And um, we're going to be throwing a big party. Everyone, it's going to be really affordable. Uh, I don't have the final pricing, but it's going to be something that anybody can afford. You know, it's going to be uh, less than $40, 40 bucks or less, I would say, unless we have something uh, last minute come up. So um, anybody that can come down. So if you guys are looking to come down, uh, any of you guys that always want to get together um, and you can make it, uh, we're just outside of San Francisco. Uh, it'll be July 21st, uh, and we'll have a big uh, big throwdown with a bunch of the DGC and uh, a bunch of the aquaponic cannabis growers, uh, and it'll be at a really, really awesome location. We have it for the whole day, and um, we're going to have a big contest and stuff, I, um, and we'll have some people there and uh, some vendors there, and we're going to have a good time. So um, definitely check it out, and we'll have more details on that uh, posted up soon. Scotty and I are finalizing some stuff on that. So, but uh, yeah, 
Oh, sorry about that. No worries. Uh, just sorry, I didn't mean to Roxy. interject there. I just <laughs> Rox, no, Rox, Roxy's interjecting here. <laughs> so, um, so tell us more up. about um, tell us more about your operation. What different yeah. types of crops do you grow? So, so you know, I just I get into some of the other things. You know, you know what I, you know what I wanted to do was have a, a very sustainable operation. You know, and and I know that. Um, you know, initially I was like, you know, going along the lines of permaculture, but you know, when you start playing around with, with aquaponics, you know, you, you, you go off on tangents. And so I don't, I don't really like to frame myself in and, you know, I like to be able to experiment a lot, but, but I try to be as sustainable as possible. And so, um, you know, I started, uh, cultivating the, uh, black soldier flies along with my, my worms back in 2012. Um, I got a, uh, a starter colony of black soldier fly larva from uh, a professor up at Portland State University named Radu Popa. Um, he was affiliated with uh, Diptera at the time, but I think he's moved on. And and so uh, he he was in Ashland and stopped in and uh, basically gave me a bucket of maggots and <laughs> to get things started. And I've been growing black soldier flies ever since. And, um, then I, I made what, what I started doing was I started working with, um, my, uh, restaurant customers. I, I sell solely to restaurants and, and I got them going on, um, what I call a bucket exchange. And so I'd come in to give them their, their delivery and I'd bring them a clean bucket and they'd give me their bucket of their pre-consumer, uh, kitchen waste from their prep that they'd keep in their walk-in and they'd happily give it to me. And they like to brag about this stuff and they, to the, to their customers, you know, that we, you know, we recycle this, we don't throw it in the dumpster. And, and then I'd feed that to the soldier flies and I'd have some customers that, that, uh, uh, prepared seafood. And so on, on Fridays, I'd sometimes I'd, I'd get a bucket of, um, shrimp legs that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd shuck those and I'd, I'd feed those to, to the fish and they just absolutely devour them. They totally loved it. And, uh, and then I made it, a, a deal with a, a local company that produces uh, organic uh, kimchi and sauerkraut, and they produce tons and tons of scraps. And their shop is close to mine, so I started working with them to pick up their scraps and to put them into my system. So, you know, at 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 the, at the peak, I was I, I was running about two tons of waste from from those guys uh, in a month. It was it's a lot of material. It's a lot of work. Um, backbreaking. <laughs> it's something that is something that needs to be automated. And, uh, 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 but, but when, when you're, when you're an, uh, an older guy like me, uh, it, it's, it's very backbreaking and most of the boxes, uh, you know, are about 70 pounds and you're, you know, just chucking dozens and dozens of these things. It's a lot of work, but you, you know, you could convert about, uh, 25, percent of that material into a uh, larval mass and and use that for um uh, supplemental fish feed um uh, you know but it but it's seasonal i you know i've run them through the winter just to keep them going uh but it's it, it's very expensive where we are we have some very cold winters and so it's expensive to keep them going in the winter so i got to where i what, what i do in the winter is i cycle them down and and I'll keep their, uh, I'll operate smaller bins that I'll I'll keep going on on heat mats and they'll keep they'll they'll keep going they'll keep feeding, 
but but it's very slow so that they they're they're not they're not going into their prepupa state right away and and i could keep them keep them rolling until spring and then i could ramp things up and they'll pupate and self-harvest into their 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 bin and then we just start the season over again and um and, and then you know through that i i developed a i developed a product um uh, that i call the the uh black soldier fly compost bin inoculator which which is this it's just this this little square of material that i that i hatch out the the larva on and i and and i worked with uh, my my brother nathan at nature's control to figure out a way to be able to ship these guys live and and guarantee live delivery and so that's that's a that's a product when i have excess that i that i usually sell in uh spring and uh and, and uh early summer and uh and i've had you know really enjoyed doing some deals with with some vineyards that have wanted to get into um uh permaculture and they they wanted to process their their grape pomace with the soldier flies to generate chicken feed and and so i've had some nice trades you know where i've sent off some you know little microscopic maggots and got you know shipments of uh boxes of of wine and so that's you know maggots into wine I mean, how does it get any better than that right <laughs> um that's great building a network that's i think the important yeah. thing there is to say you built a network you know to make it so you have a barter system going you know yeah exactly you get all this going and it's sustainable um the you know and the with the with the with the soldier flies you know one thing i want to point out to people if they get into this you know and this is in sylvia's book you know she covers soldier flies and murray has covered soldier flies um but you, you don't you don't want to feed them the pupa they don't they don't like the pupa they're not going to eat the pupa you want the pupa to hatch so that you could breed more flies um the 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 shell of the the, the puparium is made out of chitin and uh you know i i have a i have a friend uh, maximus breitensteiner who's done a lot of research along these lines and you know and he found that that it would uh that the chitin would would slow down the growth rate of the fish and so so you want to feed you want to feed the the fish the larva when they're squishy you know it, when they're larva so the, they they like that they like the larva and you've got about you know 67 percent protein you know and the rest is lipids and 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 so and, and again this is just supplemental you're it it's it's really it's really hard to just you know feed your fish solely on that and i don't think it's necessary necessarily healthy to just feed them solely on that um you know one, one thing i wanted to get into too is the types of fish that that i raise um one one problem that i had with my site it, um, is that it's it's really close to Ashland Creek, and the the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife were very particular about what I was doing on that site, and it was going to be very challenging to to transport certain species of fish there, and they 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 absolutely did not want tilapia on the site. They didn't want any Mozambique tilapia at all. And uh, you know, and they didn't want anything else cool like tiger prawns or anything like that. So, so they were giving me a really hard time. I uh, asked for a meeting with a state biologist, and he came to my shop, and we hung out a few times. And I just, I just made the case, you know. I just, I, you know, I told him about the state, the state of this planet. You know, I went over, I went over all, all the, all the issues, you know, with, with him. 
you know, as, as far as sustainability goes. And I kind of freaked the guy out and, and he finally switched gears and he goes, all right, Drew, he goes, what do you need from me? How can I help you do this? And I said, well, I need you to help me figure out which species of fish that I could raise that will meet my criteria. You know, they got, they got to, they got to do well in the aquaponics system. Uh, uh, they need, they need to taste good and be marketable. And you need to be comfortable with the fact that I'm cultivating these fish. And so he, he thought about it and he came back to me and he said, okay, he goes, I think you should try uh, black crappie, bluegill, uh, brown bullhead catfish and um, uh, largemouth bass. And you could do trout too, if you want. And I said, okay. So, so I started running with everything, but the, but the trout, you know, of course, because they need, you know, really cool temperatures, pristine water. And I, I didn't, I didn't want to run that from, from the get go. And it gets, it gets hotter than hell in my shop. And so, um, so we started out, so I, st I started out with those. Um, uh, the first guy that sold me uh, bluegill sold me a bunch of bluegill that had ick and can totally messed up my system. So I, so I had to fight, fight that off. That was just straight out of the gate. Um, I found that, that the, that the mature bluegill were almost impossible to train to, uh, to take prepared feeds. Um, and the crappie, you, you know, you could, they would only eat worms. That was the only thing that you, you can feed them anything else, but, but worms. And so, so the, the crappie were the first ones that I had, I had to stop cultivating. It was just a super huge pain in the neck to, to raise the black crappie. And they were picky eaters and they grew very slowly. Um, the, the bluegill, the bluegill fry, if you start them out as, as fry, you could train them. And then once, once you train them, they'll eat anything. And, and the, the catfish and the largemouth bass were, were great too. Um, one thing I didn't expect was that, you know, that, that the catfish would be the most marketable of all the fish, that, that those would be the ones that, that I could, you know, readily make a market for. And that, that, uh, um, you know, that I could sell the most of the, the chefs really, uh, really like the catfish and, and the catfish have done, done great in the systems. And I've, I actually, if, uh, on my YouTube channel for pyramid pure foods, I, I have a, a series of videos on, on, uh, how to breed the catfish in, in aquariums. And I don't know, people keep telling me I'm the only guy out there that's showing people how to do that. I doubt it, but, but anyways, I've got, I've got some videos that steps you through. Um, how, how to breed brown bullhead catfish in aquariums if you want to uh, get into that. I, I really recommend it. And I found that they're just, they're easy to raise. They propagate quickly. They're flexible eaters. They'll, they'll eat pretty much anything you throw at them. And, and they're super tasty. They just taste amazing. I, you uh, know, and if, and if, but, but, it, oh, go ahead. You had a question. Are they, are they indigenous to Oregon? Well, um, they were brought here, but now they're pretty much in every body of water around here. They're, they're oh, all okay, so they become indigenous. Yeah, them. yeah. So that's that's why the ODFW guy okay. was cool yeah. with it. But then again, you know, they said to me, they're like, listen, we don't want your fish, your fry, your water, your eggs. We don't want anything going down your drain or flowing out to the curb, you know, or going into yeah. the creek. And so they're like, well, you got to do this and that. And I'm in this old building that was – you know, that it was used for food production. So it's got floor sinks in it that go out to the sewer. It's close to the Creek. And so I was trying to figure out what to do. So I screened those off 
And then um, I built containment around my, my fish rearing area, which was basically a concrete curb around, around that floor space. That's a great idea. So you had a reservoir with a space yeah. outside of it, like a channel or a moat. With exactly. A exactly. Oh. And, I was, <laughs> and I was thinking, I wonder if this will fly. So the guy comes over to meet with me again. And he's, and he says to me, he goes, well, if, if you crashed a forklift into that tank uh, and all the water spilled out, um, you know, what, what, did you calculate the volume? It can it handle all that water. And I was like, yes, sir, I did. And he's like, that was the right answer. And that was it. He signed off on it. And so I was able to get my permits to have uh, fish brought out to my site. So yeah, huge, huge pain in the ass. There's really no way in hell fish could actually from my site, get into Ashland Creek. It just, it just wouldn't happen. Um, but anyways, you know, you, you jump through the hoops and, and you could do it, but you know, the big problem was, uh, uh, you know, last year, the, the feds enacted some, the USDA enacted some new regulations for catfish cultivation. And, and so they want all this, all this BS you got to do if you're going to raise catfish and you got to, you got to build a lab for the USDA employees to hang out in and monitor you and test your water and test your culture water, test the water you're delivering in. Another thing too, is that they require you to deliver your, your fish um, live to your customer, but that's actually against the law in Oregon, you know, unless, um, the site you're delivering the fish to has, um, has been inspected and has received a permit to receive the fish. Um, but if you're, if that's a restaurant, well, that's not going to happen. They're not designed for that, but they, but they are authorized to process the fish. Um, one thing I want to point out is, is that, you know, I don't, I don't play well, with with government and so what i try to do is i've tried to yeah. i've tried to design my business so that instead of breaking rules the rules don't apply to me and so i don't process anything you know i don't package anything everything's live everything's delivered live and you know even even down to my microgreens i developed a microgreen product that that's delivered live it's not harvested they harvest it and and so that's how i've had to do it you know and, and with and with my fish you know I, har I harvest them into i might change my style here after watching that video that steve posted on your on your facebook uh last night that article actually on um on killing fish but i i usually harvest my fish into an ice slurry and then i just you know i bring them over to the chefs you know live in a cooler you know and they're just dormant you know, and they process them and they love it. They think it's the coolest thing in the world. And, you know, and I, ca I call it the hyper local catch of the hour. So I got to speak up for Josh here because Josh had his business for years and he delivered his microgreens to the chefs in a live environment. He took the grow medium and they got the whole thing and then they harvested it. Live. Like you just said, that's interesting. He was just, we were just talking about that a week or so ago. And then now you're saying, now I assume that's what you did. You just take the whole thing into a container and, and give it yeah. to them. And then, yeah, and then I, they, they clip the, the live, actually they're still growing right there in their kitchen. You know. Whether. Yeah, exactly. And and what yeah. I did, that's you know, and a pretty I, good way. I like that. Yeah. And, and so, so that yeah. I, the, the micro, what I call the microgreen machine is it, it's kind of a modified NFT setup. Marty's seen it. And, um, um, and I don't, I don't use trays. I, I use, I'll, I'll give you guys some trade secrets here. I, I use a, a food grade polypropylene grid and then I put biostrate over the top of it. 
and and then I, I cultivate on that on a decoupled system. Um, uh, and and it and it and I like the way it works. It, it works. It works really good. I get a good product out of it. And then what I do is, uh, my my favorite product is a blend of uh, of radishes, and I and I like the the radish blend because you get a high yield. You get a lot of color from from the blend. You want a nice color uh, variation in stem and leaf color. Um, you want kind of a spicy snap to it, you know. And the chefs want a lot of yield, and um, and 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 you get that with the radish. It's kind of like the best of all the worlds. And and another thing is with the radish, it, it'll grow in a variety of temperatures. So if you don't have perfect climate control in your grow space. You, you, you could keep that going. I, I, I like to uh, maintain my, my, my water temperature, you know, with, within a certain range, but my air temperature will fluctuate quite a bit, but I could crank that product out consistently. It's just in the winter, my turn will change from like one week to two weeks, you know, and that's still fast and, that, and that's okay. Um, so I, so I've, you know, I've liked, I've liked going that, that route with it. So, you know, what, another thing too, is that, you know, as I've gotten into sustainable agriculture, I've been trying to blend that into my other interest, which which is uh, um, uh, startup societies. You know, ba basically, you know, wa walking away from certain government systems that you don't like, and being able to form a new a new system, create a new society, a different place. And you know, and a lot of work I've done has has been with um, uh, the uh, the, the creation of the trying to create the Jefferson Republic in Siskiyou County, California, you know, Marty's aware of this, this thing we've been working on. It's kind of like the state of Jefferson, but a little bit smaller. Um, and, and, uh, last August I, uh, I attended the startup society summit down in San Francisco and I'd been reading a book called Seasteading, uh, by, uh, Joe Cork and Patrick Friedman. And, and, and I'd been following Seasteading you know, for about, about six years or so, um, you know, and it was just this, this, this idea where you could, uh, you know, basically create, create a new, new land, a new place, you know, uh, an experiment with different governing systems, whatever, whatever you thought, you know, you want to do. And, and so, so I've been following this for, for quite some time. And then Joe and Patri released their book and I was reading their book. And I, when I was at the summit, I decided I wanted to try to find Joe, and Joe Quirk and uh, meet him. And, you know, and I, I tracked him down and cornered him, introduced myself and told him I was into sustainable agriculture and had some ideas about producing crops sustainably on seasteads. And, and then uh, he put me in touch with a, a, a company they'd started called Blue Frontiers. And, and these guys are, are working on um, building, um, basically floating cities with uh, uh varying uh government structures and so uh shortly after joining their their food systems team i be i became the lead of their food systems work group and then after we were finished with our research and our ideas i became the lead of their their food systems project and so um blue frontiers now is is uh uh raising raising uh uh they're they're doing some funds now to get things going and they're doing what's called an ico so so they have a a, a, a cryptocurrency utility token uh called varion and uh if you purchase varion um uh that that allows you to engage in the blue frontiers ecosystem 
And so what we're working on right now is to uh, uh, construct our first seasteads um, in uh, French Polynesia. So there's a few sites that we're evaluating. And my team, I have a, a, a team of geniuses. I'm not one of the geniuses, but I have a team of geniuses. And, and we've been developing the food systems. How do we feed everybody sustainably on these, on these platforms? And our primary uh, mission is to use waste as a resource. That's really what we're trying to do. And I mean, we even have to try to make use of, of, of our uh, yellow water and gray water streams. We have to deal with, with, you know, human poop even and figure out how to safely deal with that and use that as a resource. And so this has been um, an incredible application of, of everything that I've, I've, I've learned um, in, in my, my uh, uh, work in sustainable agriculture. And so hopefully very, very soon we'll, we'll start rolling these things out. And what's really cool too, is that these things that we're developing can be deployed in other places. It doesn't have to be on an artificial floating Island. Um, it could be in any coastal community. It could be in a place like Puerto Rico, you know, that's been completely destroyed by, by a hurricane and has no infrastructure. It's a, it's a perfect place to, to, to come in and, and set up uh, uh, systems for 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 water and power and and sustainable food production and waste management and all these things and and you know and what we hope to do is have systems where we could we could come in and they're modular systems and be able to roll these out and uh, another th cool thing too about these seasteads is that to make these work what we do is 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 that we interface with the government to create um, a special economic zone with within the host the the host government like say you know with within french polynesia you have like a host island and and you you uh create a special economic zone kind of like um kind of like hong kong or shenzhen you know where the government's more hands off and they let you do different things and so because to make this work you have to have an economy you can't just have a bunch of people and the, the and the point isn't to have like a bunch of rich people like show up and buy these floating islands you have to have an economy but but this opens up the the, the doors for say like say you're doing cancer research with cannabis you want to do a bunch of things and and if you're in the united states you probably can't do it and so if you're in one of our special economic zones well you could do it and and you ought to do it <laughs> and so so this this creates very interesting opportunities for innovation and and for, for for people basically to make choices for themselves i mean like maybe you'll have an island where people just want to drink raw milk you know raw milk island like we want to drink unregulated raw milk and i don't know maybe they'll have a platform with a bunch of dairy cows i'm just making this up and i don't know anybody that wants to do this but but i'm just saying as as an example um you know you could do you could do something like that and um you know so so it's just that the whole thing is for 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 people to be able to choose the, the, the governing system that they want to live under. And if you don't like it, you know, you could just hitch up your platform and get a tugboat and pull it over to another one where, where, where you agree with the people over there, or maybe you just want to be by yourself and be king of your own Island. And you could do that too. So well, that, isn't it kind of like just a biodome on a, on a barge? Essentially, and you could do something like that. Um, my 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 first my first plan. I was pitching this this to a, a buddy of mine down in Chile, who's who's working on a startup society called Fort Galt, 
and and so they're 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 building this uh, this this community where they're trying to uh, attract uh, like-minded people, and uh, and and their economy will be um, uh, basically uh, 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 incubating uh, businesses in 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 a, a within a makerspace environment, and. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you're doing something like that. And the other thing too is that the next step for these things that we're working on is is going into space. You know, uh, uh, Mars missions and uh, lunar colonies, space stations, and this sort of thing. You know, this 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 work that we do is is very relevant to 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 these things coming up in the future. But but first, we have all this ocean on this planet. You know, and people think that this planet's overpopulated. And you know, and they and you know, and they're freaking out with climate change and and sea level rise, and and we're coming to the table and we're saying, well, we have a solution for the sea level rise. You know, we 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 could create more land, uh, more coastline, and and also through sustainability, we're we're going to be able to prove that the planet has a much greater uh, sustaining power. You know, that maybe you know, this planet could hold, say, uh, nine billion people or something like like that. And with you know, with with without, you know, creating a living hell, you know, that we could have, you know, a great place to live without ruining the planet. And, and, and you know, and the goal with the seasteads is is to, you know, uh, not just be carbon neutral, but to be, you know, carbon negative and also to do things, you know, like um, uh, provide, you know, more food and resources in places like Pol French Polynesia. Can we can we bring more food, reduce imports? Um, we're, we're working with technology companies where, where we're going to be, you know, bringing in like, like, like fatter data pipelines so that they're more interconnected and, um, and, and, and also, you know, cleaning up the ocean, you know, there are things that we can do to, to, you know, phyto extract contaminants from the ocean, um, pull carbon out of the atmosphere, sequester carbon and, and, um, uh, microalgae. You know th things like this. Interesting thing that we're working on is to take our um, our, our uh, wastewater, process it through algae bioreactors, and then biodigest the algae to to generate power. And then uh, one of the one of the generators we're considering is called a Quincy generator, and we could take we the Quincy generator um, outputs CO two, and we could just pump that into one of our growth structures. It was really interesting listening to Steve, where he was talking about the challenges, you know, of growing, you know, on the equator, and and that's that's something I've been having to work on. Where on one of our sites we're looking at is at about negative seventeen degrees, so so we're really close, and you know we've got this problem with you know all this light, and and also we have reflection coming off the ocean, so we have solar saturation, and then we have salt spray, and and then we've got design criteria too, where we want to have you know trees and ornamental plants on the platforms and, and to be able to make that work. And, you know, one of my, one of my visions has been to, to use like a, like a Dutch bucket style um, a design coupled with the aquaponics and some of our yellow and gray water systems to keep those going. But we still have these challenges, you know, with, with, you know, how do we deal with the, you know, saltwater spray and uh, you know, and can we, can we incorporate, other plants that could, uh, uh, you know, halophytes, you know, say salicornia or something like that, that could phyto extract, you know, that salt so that we, you know, we don't run into a problem. So it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge. It's, it's been um, a lot of fun working on this and it's going to be pretty incredible to see it working. If, if, if anybody wants to check out what we're doing, you go to 
blue-frontiers.com and and you could and, and you could also uh, search down on YouTube. We've got a, a YouTube channel and uh, uh, we're also on Telegram. Most of the stuff about the ICO is on tel is on Telegram. So if you want to check that out, but so my company is uh, Pyramid Pure Foods is uh, um, a strategic partner with Blue Frontiers. And what I'm hoping to do is pivot my operation into being um, what I what I call a, a hub for Blue Agritech, where we're going to be doing lots of R and D uh, around sustainable agriculture that will be deployed on on these uh, floating platforms. So it's really, it's really incredible this, this direction that we're going in at this point. <laughs> that's incredible. That, that's a, there's a lot, there's so much you went on and talked through that I can't, I honestly can't believe that a lot of what you're, you've talked about and you're trying to develop is, um, uh, I, I have a lot of the same kind of thoughts and beliefs and, and would like to see that kind of thing. Well, especially with the, you know, working with the salt water. That's the one thing I, I'm intrigued with is attempting to work, you know, through some kind of deal where you can, you you know, be in, uh, have salt water in, you know, with uh, you, with an aquaponics type kind of situation or whatever. Well, and, and with a different environment. And, and you all. can, and, you know, you could do, you could do polyculture. And so you could do fish and shellfish and you could do seaweed and this sort of thing using polyculture. And this is something that we're, that we're working on. People always ask me when people find out I'm, I'm leading food systems, they, they, they almost all, I, I get two questions. People always ask me. One is, are you going to be harvesting uh, fish out straight out of the ocean, wild caught? No way. We're not going to do that. The, the other question is, well, you know, what about the vegans? Well, we're going to be growing lots and lots of vegetables. There's going to be well, you know, you have to work through that. Let's <laughs> yeah. grow food first, and we'll worry about everybody with their little idiosyncrasies. <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you're you're out there in the ocean, and so there's all these opportunities. Like, for example, you could cultivate, um, you could cultivate uh, seaweed on ropes out there in the ocean. Well, you here, know, here's but, my. Yeah, everybody on the show knows, but I'm I'm dying to create a system where I can create a a. a, a Auto, well, not automated, but you know, uh, not, uh, one of our cult uh, in a, a, a culture where I can grow pistachio nuts. Oh wow! Oh, and that's in a that's in a saltwater um, tidal basin. Basically, it's like an ebb and flow. It's grown naturally huh. in an no, ebb and flow. It's a, no kidding. Green that grows in a tidal basin, and it's dry, and it's wet, and it's dry, and it's wet. You know, every, every time the tide comes in. Right. 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 And uh, so I said, well, that sounds like something that'd be, and I talked to everybody about it. And now, now you know, th there are some people that are, you know, messing with it, uh, you know, but I haven't found anybody. I, I have piqued some people's interest on the show because that's what, but see, when I talk to you and hear what you're doing now, see, and you're talking about using the ocean, well, now you're in the salt water, you know. Um, well, well and, yeah. My, my initial approach was that we were, only going to do saltwater systems, period, because we're out on the ocean. But I started getting feedback from people, and they wanted different things. And so, you know, and, and, and also, you know, on these projects, with, with our first project, we'll have an anchor zone where we'll actually be starting out on land near our site where we'll go out right. in the ocean. And so, you know, on that, on that anchor zone, we'll most likely be dealing with uh, – 
fresh fresh water um, uh, aquaponics and hydroponics. And so it ends up being part of the thing and incorporated into it. And, uh, and, and then just gauging from what people wanted, you know, they were asking me, well, can we do this? Well, it's not my first choice to be growing freshwater fish on a platform in the ocean, but yes, we can do it. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather just be doing saltwater stuff, but we, we can, we can do this. And, yeah, uh, I don't see a big problem for protecting the fish from spray. You know, uh, it's almost like you're going to have to have, like I said, you're going to have to have almost like a dome kind of thing, or you, you know. So, uh, so, so what we come know, for up the with, fresh for the fresh, and then we, you'll have that saltwater culture outside. You know. So, kinda, so what, so what we're coming up with are designs for uh, uh, floating autonomous robotic greenhouses. So, <laughs> I, I, uh, and so we've been working on. I, actually, this has been coming out of my operation with 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 my cohort, and uh, um, is so we, we we're coming we're coming out with these with these designs, and uh, um, and you know, and it's not the easiest thing to come up with, you know, because you're out there on the ocean, and there's there's a lot of problems you need to deal with. But see, one of the biggest challenges that we face with the with the seasteading is that the cost of our real estate right now is really high. And you typically don't grow your crops on your pr most prime expensive real estate. So and that's have, because you're starting on the beach before you go out. <laughs> yeah. So we're like creating like premium real estate, right. but we still want to be, you know, self-sustaining. So we've had well, to come up. If you're right, you know that if you're right, that's going to really pay off in the end, you know, have, have that beachfront property, you know, Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or just build a bunch <laughs> of beachfront property. But so we've got to have the, 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 uh, autonomous greenhouses out there and constructed in an inexpensive way. And, and, and so, you know, we're doing, you know, a lot of research along the lines of robotics and I do, I do a lot of work with uh, uh, sensors, microcontrollers and this sort of thing, you know, for, for things like monitoring my systems and, and collecting data. But, but we have to like take it a step further, even with that, with like, you know, automated harvesting you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and to, to, to limit the amount, well, well, it'll be a little bit risky working inside of these structures. And so, so you want to, you want, you know, plus with, you know, with your, uh, uh, integrated pest management system. I mean, you don't, you want to try to keep people out of your growth space as much as possible. Um, so, so we're like, we're, you know, working on a, a lot of automation. Um, but we, you know, we have, you know, the, it's super challenging when you're trying to like grow enclosed in in the tropics you know you want to keep that sea spray off but you've got that you know all this light solar saturation you got the light coming down on top of you you got the light reflecting off the water it's a lot of light so you actually need more shade you need you need some shading temperature control well um, you got water that's cooler you got water that you can use some, if you're out if, if you're anchored or whatever you're talking about i think you're talking about being in a spot then you've got you go down deep enough you get cool water to filter through that exactly and radiant yeah. heating through that cool water exactly from depths the yep. depth in the ocean right yep. oh, i see yep. steve's back we're talking about radiant heating here he <laughs> uh, i was just gonna say how do you deal with um storms yeah the the hurricane issue is 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 common you know we get that all of the time and so we we have to design for that and it's a uh, it's something that my team discusses all the time. I, I have a couple guys on my team who are experienced with, um, 
growing in the tropics and hurricane prone areas. And so we have to, uh, you know, that's part of our design criteria is that, is that things that we build, whether, you know, it's for, for the, the, the residences or for the, um, the, the greenhouses, they have to be able to um, withstand, um, uh, you know, a hurricane. And you think you're going to tie them down similar like you would an oil platform? Is that what your thoughts are? Or do you have a new technology? Well, well you've got things, you know, how, how it's moored is really important. Um, also, the, the shape of the structure is super important. And there's other things you have to consider, too, which is this, you know, vacuum that's created that, that basically, you know, you know, causes things, you know, to, to just blow to pieces. And, and so, so you have to design the thing. I mean, this is something we're really, really thinking about, you know, like, like if you're going to build like a, you know, a greenhouse within that environment, I mean, you typically go along the lines of like a, a tropical vented greenhouse or an NVAC type of design where, you know, you've got, you, you've got like water misting to cool and, 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 you know, driving the heat out the top, but also, you know, that kind of the shape, you know, lends, lends itself to being ripped apart by a hurricane. And so, so you look at dome structures, they seem to be, you know, possibly, you know, better at, at that. Um, and then, um, and, and then on the other side of things, you know, we have a, we have a technology partner who's very interested in just, you know, um, freight farming, you know, container growing in freight containers, you know, uh, which of course is, is totally hurricane proof, but, um, you know, I mean, Actually, it's, it's, it's more right. ener energy intensive, you know, of course. Um, now, what about the fact that it, 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 it oh, yeah, go ahead, Steve. Pedro in Puerto Rico actually had his shipping containers thrown directly through his greenhouse. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. 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 We had a guy, uh, yeah. one of Steve's friends came on the show and talked all about hooking up a whole bunch of grow containers together to build his infrastructure. I love yeah. that piece of information. <laughs> Man. Yeah, so they, they, did, yeah. they didn't survive, they, but that was Puerto Rico and that was a direct hit from a category five. So. Pretty intense. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's my super. thought. My thoughts on it, though, is if you're going to develop this where there's a whole bunch, what, you know, what are we looking at for impact? Now I have to go to the, you know, like the looking at, like you said, you were trying to do something for the earth, right? So uh, I have this thought, though, is what, what, what's the impact of drilling for mooring or, or from attaching all these and uh, messing up at different intervals if we had a community, all these, the, the floor of the ocean out there? Well, um, to be drilling, yeah. drilling, 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 you know what I mean? In right, right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, do, we do have to do environmental studies when we're making pitches to, to these governments. And, you know, so they come back and they want another thing, too, is we don't want to mess things up. And like, like we don't want to wreck, we don't want to ruin the the coral reef, you know, in a lagoon that's hosting us or something like that. Right, and, um, and I'm not attacking you either. I'm just saying that it, it's worth well, the, actually, it's the topic no, I, we're talking about. So. Well, actually, at one of our sites, like we can't we can't go into we we can't mess up the bottom of the lagoon. We can't do anything to it. Right. Okay. So so so, anyways, you know what you're talking about is having you know an adequate amount of like ballast to to basically oh. stick you in place you know, so that you're not going to be, you're not going to be moved around. You're not going to be rocked around. And, so and with, anchor like a boat. Yes. And, ship. and, and ship. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. And, and we've got, we have some architects out of the Netherlands called blue 21 
And and these guys, they they yeah. design these things and then they wave test everything in this giant tank to see what's going to happen. And and so you know that's kind of driving the design right there. That's a good answer right there <laughs> because they they've been dealing with floods with all that. You know they still that's have some, they, they still exactly. have the they still have some pins you know anchored in there. But you know things fluctuate and they go up. But they're really good on that technology. Hey, the, to deal the, with that kind of situation. They're, they're, they were yeah. good with cannabis technology and they were good with seastead technology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they live, <laughs> they live, they're surrounded by water. You something, know? something good's <laughs> happening over there. It, it must be, must be that being close to the water is good for you. Great genetics. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really, really cool to work with those guys. And they're, but they're, they're super interested in what my team brings to the table with, with sustainable agriculture and, and, it, and in particular, uh, with that, with the algae bioreactors, and and so this is something. This is like a whole new direction for me, you know. With like, you know, usually like you don't want algae, and here you are, you know, wanting to grow algae <laughs> and going out of your way to do it. So, um, you know, so that's what that's what uh, you know. I think uh, algae will will be uh, driving most of our wastewater processing. Well, that's what I've been wanting to do. Uh, we've talked about that on the show too. That's one of my kicks because, you know, a lot of what everybody on the show is involved in is they don't just grow fish and grow cannabis or, you know, or like do aquaponics or grow cannabis. They, they have big uh, vegetable farms, you know, and produce farms. Right, right. And, and, and also, you know, we're finding like you're talking about the soldier uh, flies and, uh, you know, and the way you, you keep providing, you know, uh, for those uh, and, and protecting the environment around your grow. And, and so. Uh, so one of the things I've been doing yeah. with the soldier flies, I, I started this experiment last summer is I, I've been feeding them um, a, a variety of, of uh, macroalgae of seaweed. So I, I've been I've been feeding them about five different varieties of uh, seaweed uh, to see what the heck happens. So if we're growing seaweed off of a uh, 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 wastewater from from our systems, can I take that can I take that seaweed and feed it to the soldier flies to generate fish food? And you know, and so so far I, I'm convinced that I can at least for supplemental fish food. And so they'll they'll eat it. You know, there is a point, I'm not sure yet, you know, where, you know, if there's a, there's a point where, uh, salt levels become toxic, you know, to, to, to the larva. I haven't crossed that threshold, you know, yet. I don't know if there is a threshold there, you know, it's possible that there are, and maybe I, I might want to mix up their food inputs to make sure that something like that doesn't happen. Um, and, and so, you know, another thing that we get into, you know, is people want to know what we're going to do with our poop. And, and so I, I, I have, a, I have a guy, I have a guy and this is, this is his specialty. And so he's, he's developed these, um, uh, urine diverting dry toilets, uh, Chris Canada out of, uh, Ecuador. So he, he's the expert in urine diverting dry toilets. So I, and I, and I, and I tell you, I mean, most of our, our discussions, you know, regarding seasteading has been about, you know, how we're going to go to the bathroom. What's our toilet technology going to be? And we've literally been designing these things from the toilet up, you know, because this is really a big deal. It, usually this sort of thing is an afterthought, you know, like, like I know, like where Marty and I live, my grandfathers would tell me, well, back in the day, you know, all the sewers just went right into Bear Creek and out to the Rogue River. Well, now everything goes down the oh, drain. Now. 
and out to the Rogue River. But uh, <laughs> but anyways, um, uh, so what we're trying to do is like we're we're designing from this point. Like, how do we keep our waste from going out there into the environment? And what can we do with it? So so um, so so the urine diverting dry toilets is really is really key. And then basically you uh, uh you know you divert the urine. The urine goes one way, the poop goes the other, and then and then you 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 basically compost that that poop for six months. And after six months, anything anything nasty's, you know, is is gone. You know, any kind of. Uh, I thought it was a year. So you think I, I thought I, well, my research because I was I'm I'm all good with this research. It's proven, you know, no doubt about it. You just have to be open minded. But oh, what do you say, Steve? Huh? It's in the tropics, it's faster. Well, I can make. Oh, in the because it's hotter all the time. Okay. In, well, in that's Jamaica, all right. So, all right. In Jamaica, right. I can make compost in thirty days with a trash bag. Yeah, yeah but yeah, human compost, though, huh? Yeah, and, and, and Chris is a biologist, so I have to trust him on this. When he says six months. Okay. No. Okay. I just. Uh, but just, <laughs> that's a good, you know, you're in that. You're yeah. So you've got twelve hours of heat every day. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and so basically, what you end up with is just kind of this powdery dirt. Another thing too is that instead of like flushing that, you know, and mixing it with your potable water or whatever, you, you you basically have some already processed material that you sprinkle over it, and it's got you know everything in there to start working on that. All your enzymes and microbes, they're going to start processing that that material and breaking it down into dirt and and you know and some people have been creeped out by the idea that we might use that for crop production and we don't have to use it for crop production we could use it for for our ornamental plants you know because we want we want these environments to feel natural and and we could we could use that you know for like dual root zone with our fruit trees or or uh, ornamental trees or or with our flowers and things like this and so you know if people have problems, you know, accepting that we might be <laughs> growing, growing, uh, you know, potatoes like Matt Damon or something like that. Uh, uh, oh, you better, you read my mind. I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, like if you're on Mars, you're going to be growing your food and poop. Okay? <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I mean, I mean, ultimately, I mean, we got to go with what we have to work with, but uh, you know, uh, I mean, we, you're, you have limited resources, but, but at the same time, you don't want to be turning people off. And of course, you don't ever want to make anybody sick. And, uh, you know, for and we, sure, for yeah, sure. yeah. So, so anyways, these, these are things that, these are things that we're working on, uh, you know, closing loops, being carbon negative, um, uh, clean things up instead of messing things up, you know, is what is, is what we're trying to do, uh, with, with these seasteads and, and live as freely as possible or not freely if that's what you're into you could have your you know your your tyrannical platform as long as you don't bug the other folks you know <laughs> yeah so you can be vegan you know if you want to be vegan yeah like you said yeah was, no, I, yeah well I, I, run a, I run yeah i run across a lot of vegans in in this circle and uh you know we cut you know this is you know i i run into a lot of um uh, you know libertarian minded people uh uh, we call ourselves a uh, uh, voluntarist, voluntarius. And oh, so you claim to be a libertarian then? I'm beyond libertarian. I'm a I'm a voluntarist. Yeah, voluntarist. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all all human interaction should be voluntary and free of coercion, except uh, oh yeah, except in self defense. That's okay. Violence is okay in self defense, but otherwise, well, I, I, I I agree. I love that. But otherwise, no co no coercion. 
yeah, and, and people can make decisions for themselves. Well, that just goes back to live and let live, right? Yeah. Pretty much the golden rule, really. And yeah, exactly. And then, but, but, but you don't, don't come and steal my sheep. <laughs> exactly. And, and it works pretty good until you get over like maybe 200 people. You know, when you get over that threshold, then things get all screwed up and you've got, well, special interests and you've got the crooked people that are trying to like benefit themselves at the expense of everybody else. And you get that kind of junk going on. But with the smaller community, almost everybody's voices can be heard. You know, if somebody's corrupt, it's going to be exposed pretty quickly and dealt with. And um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a better way um, to, to organize yourself. World, right. Well, maybe not perfect. I don't think you could ever achieve a utopia. No, no. However, I'm I, I messing do, with you. I'm messing with you. Well, one thing I'd like to say is people always go, "Well, you guys are trying to create a utopia." Well, we're trying to create a bluetopia, not a utopia. And I think it's utopian when people think that government could completely provide for everybody. You know that 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 you could put all your faith in government, and government kind of like Santa Claus or something. You know, could just like bring you everything. And that, I think that's a utopian concept. But I'm kind of going off into the weeds here. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to put you in there. Weeds. Well, I, I, th I think as far as, as weed goes, I mean, we've had to deal with all this for a long time. And we're starting to get out of this where we could see. Yeah. But, but also, it's coming full circle where we're going, okay, well, we have less government regulation um, that's allowing us to grow a certain thing. But that at the same time, we're seeing the unintended consequences that go along with letting the government control and regulate a substance, which is what's happening now. So like, like, um, like I, I have, uh, I have a tenant at, at uh, some uh, uh, commercial property that I operate that operates a dispensary and a farm uh, or, a, uh, uh, you know, he cultivates cannabis on a commercial scale. And I remember when I first met him years ago and I was like, buddy, are you sure you want to do this? If you screw up, you're, you're, you know, you're in big trouble. You and, and they're going to be like changing these regs all the time. It's going to be hard. And, you know, and, and, and he's always in a pickle and, and we're always in a pickle. We had, we had our, our lender came down on us and said, you know, we're calling your loan. You know, we want, we want $5 million right now um, because um, we have to abide by federal regulations and you guys have, have a dispensary in there. And, um, you know, and that, that took a lot of work to work that out and, and it's never completely settled. And, uh, and then this guy, you know, um, you know, he didn't file a certain piece of paperwork within, you know, the proper period of time. And then his, his oh, license yeah. is on the table, you know, they're, you know, waiting for an enforcement officer's decision. And so, you know, this kind of stuff, we're, we're kind of to the point now where we can see the unintended consequences of making these deals with the government. You know, and going, okay, well, let me do this, you know, and I'll submit to this and this and this. And maybe that's worse than when it was totally illegal. You know, maybe it was, um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing that. And I, I, I hope we see some pushback. Another thing that I don't like is where we see where people go, well, if you tax it, it's okay. Well, how come like something's a crime, but as soon as you could tax it, then suddenly it's a vice. You see what I mean? Like the only difference between crime and vice is a tax being paid. Like, oh, alcohol is illegal. Oh, hey, well, it's regular. That's a good point. That's a good point. Like taxation, if you don't, well, it's almost too late. But right. if you don't recognize the tax from the beginning, they can't say you owe the tax. 
It's once you decide that you would, once they tax you and you say, okay, I agree and I pay the tax, you're you're stuck paying the tax. It's like the, 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 the folk legend stories about the guy that never recognized the U.S. government IRS taxation and never paid. And after 40 years, they came after him. But the fact that he never signed up for it and never paid it, he never, because it's a voluntary act. Well, you, you, sh you should read uh, Lysander Spooner's book called no <laughs> Lysander Spooner. He wrote this back in the 1800s. He was like the original anarchist and he wrote a book called no treason. And he, he, you know, and he basically said, Hey, I, I never consented to the constitution. Even I never consented to that. I never signed anything. As a matter of fact, he went and he, he, That's he, a good point. he started, wow. his own, he started his own mail delivery service and uh, was competing with the U S postal service. And what happened? He was doing a better job for for uh, a lower price, and well, they they regulated him out of business. I've thought about that, and it might be time for that again because FedEx, uh, they subcontract their subcontractors like for FedEx, <laughs> right. and then they drop. Then they'll take a whole bunch of truck and ride out to the local post office <laughs> and give it to them. Right. So you actually could start. Well, I might be blowing somebody up right now. But, um, <laughs> you you actually could start your own postal delivery service, and uh, like even if it was lo uh, lo local, regional, whatever, you probably could get away with it right now because the uh, big carriers are having trouble taking care of everything. Well, you know, what, what makes what, I I mean I think it should all be private. But and, and what makes me happy is when I'm driving around and I see I see the postal you know, delivery trucks out there and they're all jacked up. They've got like primer spots on them and stuff. You know, they need paint jobs. The graphics are all faded. They look like junkers. Oh, you know? I got, I got a TV last year that came soaking wet. The whole, it was so <laughs> wet. The corrugation on the box was separating and the, the UPS driver said, well, all of our trucks leak. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think if I was driving this truck, if I had to bring a truck from home, I wouldn't bring me a TV that was so, you know. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, we digress. Yeah. We're way sideways down a rabbit hole about now, but. Uh, well, I don't know. We're we're still kind of on the lines with cannabis, and 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 so you know. Anarchy. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 what bugs me is that, you know, you you see you read these articles and they're like, oh, you know, Colorado collected all of this all of this revenue you know, in, in uh, cannabis sales and it all went into good things. Well, it doesn't all into good, go into good things. Most of it goes into the bureaucracy, all that overhead to manage all that junk and all the crony stuff. And all you've done is made the government even bigger. And then, or they go, well, it goes into the schools. Well, you know, you know, I was doing some research into compulsory schooling in Oregon recently, you know, and, and, and the whole concept of compulsory schooling came around here back in the 1920s and it was it was pushed through by the KKK and the Masons who didn't like the fact that the Catholics and the Jews had their own schools for their kids you know and so we get into all this junk and it's like well you know how about a better idea would be this like if you want to collect the tax on the cannabis sales well then let the the homeowners in the individual areas decide if that if that money should go back to them as a credit on their property taxes, or if they don't want, it could go to the schools. 
right? Why can't you make that choice? You, like, you can't tell me the technology's not there. You know, they got all the software, the AIs and all that junk, you know, that could, it's totally doable for people to make choices. Like, well, I don't want the cannabis money to go to the, to the public school. I'd rather it go to, you know, a charter school or something like that, or, or I want it to go to my own homeschool. Oh, but you're now you're talking about creating another further bureaucracy behind all the other bureaucracies well, because now you've got to have something to keep up with all their choices. Well, that's what I, I, that, I, I kind of like the idea that you gave. I thought at first you were just saying, all right, give them a choice that if in, as a community you say there could be cannabis here and taxed, but we want our property taxes to be dissolved before it goes to the schools. Yeah, and, right. but I'm more of a guy that thinks it just should all go to the kids and old people that can't take care of themselves that took care of us when when we were young. Yeah, but, yeah. So, but, so but, it should just know, be it should be a choice though. People could could like make the choice, and you could manage the technology's there to manage this sort of thing. You know, you could you could do it like 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 the Varion token I was talking about that Blue Frontiers is using is 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 on a, a crypto network called Ethereum. And Ethereum uh, uh, has these uh, smart contracts built into it that can manage these sorts of things. It's called a decentralized autonomous organization, and and it can manage that. So people can just basically like literally vote with their dollars and go, well, I want this to happen with this money. I want this to happen, you know. And they could literally, and you don't have to like have a big election and send out all this junk in the mailbox and stuff. It could all be it could all be electronically, and it's all on the blockchain. So I think the technology is there, and through this sort of thing, people can, um, y y with within their communities, th without having to like even completely dissolve communities, like we're, we're we're talking about, where people are just like, I'm getting out of here. I'm gonna go my own way and find other people like me. Well, maybe some of us have to li still live amongst our uh, each other, you know, like 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 my neighbors don't. Are, are completely different across the political spectrum than I am. I mean, all around me, we all have different views, but we get along like really well. It's, it's incredible. And, uh, and, and, you know, and it's, it amazes me actually, you know, you have the, the, the politics, you know, on one level, but then when you have um, your conversations on the curb, you know, you realize that you love your neighbor, you know, <laughs> you don't want to have it. You don't want anything bad to happen to him, but you'd help him out. You'd totally help him out in a pinch. Um, and, and, and so what I'm saying is, is that, is, is that you could have basically what Doug Casey would refer to as, as files, you know, where people don't necessarily have to completely uh, extricate themselves from their community. They could within their be still live within their community, but networking with un other like-minded peoples and even unlike-minded peoples where they're compromising uh, uh, with 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 one another. You know what? What I don't like is like like where I live. I think my property taxes now are a thousand dollars higher than they were when I bought my house uh, ten years ago, and um, almost all of the money goes to school bonds and all this kinds of stuff and. Uh, I don't have any kids. I'm not going to have any kids. And if I did have any kids, I wouldn't put them in any of those schools. And okay, um, okay. So I see what I you know, see. I got friends like that too, and I I agree. I, I see your point. And I well, you know what? I have no kids. All right. So I I agree 
but I always just think that part of the problem with our country is that uh, we don't we don't put enough into making sure the kids are comfortable and, and they're able to have a good education and comfort. And and I know that's a burden on some of us that don't have kids. But and and I'm not against you though. I I I totally agree with your concept. I just guess I'm getting old, and as you get old, you just want to, you know, you don't care about giving shit away, I guess. Well, uh, uh, it's, it's not about that. It's just how it's done. Like, like, uh, you know, well, like. Yeah, 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 yeah. The bureaucracy. Know? Yeah. Well, and, and not just that, like, like school, school was a horrible environment for me. I shouldn't have been in the school. It actually, it actually uh, held me back. You know, I, I could have, I, I could have uh, accomplished uh, way, way more with my youth if I hadn't been in a public school. You know, it, 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 it stifled me. And, and so oh, yeah. I, 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 I never felt stifled, but I also lived around the world in different uh, areas where I lived in very high educational districts and I've always, and, and I've always been educated very low and there is a difference and some private schools are good, you know, but I, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm sorry. I'd, I kind of lost because uh, I'm not really sure where you were going with that, and I I started to I mentioned. Oh well, I, I'm just saying is that is that I'm you know I'm I'm addressing public schools in in particular. I think it's funny. Like I have a friend who uh, she, she uh, does what's called uh, unschooling. She unschools her kids. Uh, Dana Martin, you could find her online. And I I used to do podcasts. I'd have her on all the time. Um, <clears throat> and her her kids are. I've, I've had some of her kids on my show too, when I was doing podcasts and uh, um, her kids are super smart, very skilled, but they're, spe they're and they're specialized in certain things. Like her, her uh, oldest son decided he wanted to be a blacksmith. So he figured out how to be a blacksmith and he built his forge and then he started a little business and he's got his, he got his own operation going on. And, you know, and that was something, you know, that, it rarely happens if you're in a public school system where you could go into a, a direction like that. I, I didn't, I didn't get that opportunity until I was, you know, my 12th, 12th year in school where, where I was finally, you know, came across a, a class where, you know, I was able to do something like that. And oh yeah, uh, like a shop class or something. Same for me about 12, 13, 14 out, but I was in Texas, which was a big, they had a big, uh, strong school scholastic education yeah. network and and they had shop classes and they had all kinds of intuitive and uh progressive uh thoughts like you didn't have class the same time every day you yeah know? right and right you only had english four times of the week and one day you didn't have english or one day you didn't have math or one day you didn't have science you know mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um and it, yeah. it they thought it opened up to refresh you because one day you could have a break you know during the week so it didn't make made school a little happier but you know, um, I was thinking we're 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 getting out there like we're writing a book. But uh, <laughs> is there other stuff about your aquaponics and and whatever you know you'd uh, bring to bring it back into the show that you'd like to discuss uh, things you're doing that you know we haven't talked about already. And well, he probably I think, has a question. You know, I, I think I one thing I think one thing I'd like to do is I'd I'd really like to encourage people to cultivate fish in their systems that they could eat. And, 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 and I think that it was something when, when the catfish cartel started coming down on little boutique operators like me, you know, you know, it made me realize that I was onto something and that this was a way that you could sustainably produce a lot of food for people. And so yeah. I would say, 
you know, if you're in this game and, and you're, you're into the aquaponics and you're, and you're spreading the word of aquaponics to people, you know, get them along that line of where they could, they could potentially produce, you know, the greatest amount of uh, food and medicine in, uh, for, for, for themselves and their family. And, and I found that the, that the, that the, the catfish I, I found were great for that, you know, and, and so, uh, and, you know, they're, they're easy to raise. They'll tolerate a lot of, they'll tolerate the most horrible water conditions. If you screwed up, you know, they'll tolerate it. Um, oh yeah. They're, they're rough and tough. That's a rough and tough yeah. species right yeah. there. And, and, and you can, and being farm bred like you would have them there and treated so well, uh, you know, when you harvested them, you, they'd be real good tasty eating too. Yeah, you, you put them in the 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 purge tank for a few days, and you know, and they 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 taste wonderful. There's no off taste. There's no muddy taste. You know, there's not there's 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 none of that. Oh. There's none of that. I mean, most of those bad flavors you get are from blue green algae. You know, from farm farm bred catfish tastes. I never liked catfish. They were so a little too fishy for me. Yeah, yeah. Then yeah. I ate then I ate farm bred catfish in a restaurant one night that they own their own you know catfish farm. And that was some good cap. That was some good. Yeah. That was good eating. So, that was good old southern eating right there. So when we get we do a real rapid kill with the with the uh, trout uh, when we we turn them oh, over. Oh, yeah. Uh, when we uh, turn them over real real quickly, uh, we have a local chef that taught us how to do that. And um, uh, the trout man, we, it's like sushi grade. It's so good. Right. We we caught it right up. Well. We don't sell it to the public, but we'll take one if it if it jumps out or whatever, or we'll we'll kill them real quick and or take one home for ourselves and kill them real quick and cut up cut them up, have some sushi or and uh, it's real good. You don't even have to cook them. I, I've I've wondered if you could, <laughs> if you could do a sashimi grade catfish. I I was I, one of my customers is a, a sushi chef, and we we've talked a lot about this. You know, if you if you uh, um, I I I you know I've done a little, a little bit of experimentation with this, but I haven't gone all the way with, you know, how saline I could get that water before they die. And, and, and then you flash freeze, you know, to, to kill off any, any other parasites in there. And, you know, and the flash freezing is really the key to, to having safe uh, sashimi. And, but, but I've thought that it, that it could be cool, you know, to, to produce a freshwater sashimi grade uh, product that would be amazing to be able to do that, and, you know, especially if you get that in your local market. Oh yeah, yeah, that'd be really good. Definitely something that uh, I think is definitely an opportunity for a lot of people. So, um, I was uh, thanks a lot for your for coming on. Um, I want to. Uh, it's almost nine o'clock. I want to like, let every, yeah. give everyone else a chance real quick to tell to let us know what they're doing. Uh, before we wrap the show up, but uh, I really appreciate it. Sounds like you're doing a bunch of really cool stuff, and um, uh, I'll get the rest of the links um, uh, that you mentioned uh, added to the description here at the end of the show uh, when we repost it. Thanks a lot for coming on. Do you want to uh, tell people again before we go uh, uh, how to find you? I think he's breaking up there. His connection died, or is it on my end? Or hmm. how about now? There you go. Now it's working. 
Oh, okay. Uh, my my website is pyramidpurefoods.com. And uh, if you want to learn more about seasteading, you can go to blue-frontiers.com. Awesome. Thanks a lot. That is cool. That, that really does sound cool, that Blue Frontiers deal. That, that I'd love to be able to do that one day and try yeah. it out for maybe a year, you know, or six months or whatever. I'm sure people will rotate in and out. Yeah, I want, I want to be out there on the high seas with my algae farm. That's my goal. Yeah. I like the algae farm idea. There's a lot of you know, <laughs> fuel, right? Fuel. fuel. Exactly. Yeah, fuel and food. Fuel. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Um, you're welcome to hang out the rest of the show. Uh, so All I right. Give everybody else a chance real quick. To, I'm going to uh, mute up here. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, um, Steve, keep your microphone up, buddy. Oh, yeah. I don't know why my mic's being so quiet today. I don't know, because you're laid back, so your microphone's taking a cue from you. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'll see if I can fix that. That was excellent. That was cool. That was really cool. Oh, yeah. no. Thank you, Drew. That was a lot of great concepts. I tell you what, I I, I love almost every concept. Well, I loved every concept you had, actually. You know, there was what nothing negative about it. It was great. And yeah, we all think about that. Some of us all think about that. So, so what have you been up to, Marty? See if he's here at the moment. He might have kids. Yeah, let's get Marty going. I'd be putting his kids to sleep or something. Okay, we'll come back to Marty. Marty's... What have you What have you been up to, uh, Mr. Green Jeans? I got it. I got that one right this time, huh? Yeah, not much. Um, <clears throat> same old stuff. Uh, thanks. Um, boy, it was a great show tonight, wasn't it? Fantastic couple of guests. You know. Uh, um, I've been getting a lot of emails, I guess, from the podcast. It's really great. Still trying to answer them all. You know, I can, um, I'm answering questions. You know, people are asking me about growing stuff and everything. And <clears throat> my wife is answering some of the ones about people are requesting genetics and seeds and things like that. So thanks a lot for everybody, for all the attention. Greenjeansgarden.com. <laughs> It's been awesome. awesome. This was a great show tonight, wasn't it? Fantastic, man. Yeah. Drew was amazing. I, I uh, and uh, Breeder Steve. I mean, oh my God, or two separate. We could have just they could have been just separate, right? I mean, like <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. So, um, uh, I had a question for you, and I figured it'd be better just to ask on the show. So, how would you recommend uh, the best way to permanently preserve your pollen? Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, I think the. I've taken ones out of after six months in frozen, you know, successfully frozen it. And I think if it's just dry, but that's, that's as long as I've ever really tested it. So I imagine it'll probably last longer than that. It's frozen, right? But it just has to be really dry. I mean, that's the thing is to get it extremely dry first. And um, so I've done it in just very small quantities because obviously the more you do, right, the more likely it is to be wet. So a very small amount, um, you know, with just a couple of grains of rice dried out or whatever, or you could use, maybe you could use a, a desiccant like a, you know, silica gel or something like that and just make sure it's super dry and then airtight and frozen. And I've, I've used it after six months and it's worked perfectly, but you know, 
I usually use pollen right away. I don't usually store it much longer than a couple of weeks or whatever. So I'm, I'm probably yeah. not the, not really the guy to ask. That the limit that I have ever used it is around well, six months. I, and I don't think that's, that. I don't think that's that long. I think people have successfully stored it longer than that. I think that the key is just getting it real dry and yeah. cold. Maybe, maybe frozen or more frozen than the freezer. Maybe something you know, like your cryogenic, like your deep freezer. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, it's a great question. I'd love to know the answer, Steve. Well, how about this question? Since you, 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 how about how do you? Why don't you give everybody a tip on how you collect your pollen? Oh yeah, what was yeah. That? Um, man, I, geez, I have the. Uh, well, what I, what I, I, Let me I give you a live demonstration. <laughs> I should have. You caught me off guard. Um, you know, really. The thing about it is, is that pollen really, it drops uh, pretty much straight down, uh, especially when, well, after a while, when the, when the, everything starts to get really dry and everything, it blows and everything. But the first few, when the flower right away is first open and it's, the pollen's pretty heavy and it's kind of wet and everything. And as long as it's not a really strong wind blowing, it takes a good shock. I can even, a plant that's got a bunch of open flowers on it. It's possible to even pick it up really carefully and move it around <laughs> without even uh, jiggling the flowers enough to knock the pollen off it. I know that sounds incredible, but it's definitely possible because it takes it takes a pretty good, you know. So, and I'm, but I'm just talking about just a barely open, you know, um, because that's all it really takes. And uh, what I use is a bottle cap, uh, I, I I glue it. I hot glue it to the end of a chopstick, and I use a I use a beer bottle cap, upended, glued on the end of a chopstick, and uh, or you could use you don't have to use a bottle cap, a beer bottle cap. You could use a medicine bottle cap or something. But it's very convenient because you can hold it in there and use the end of another chopstick, and you could just tease. Uh, you could pin the uh, pin one of the flowers to the edge of the bottle cap, for example. And you have both of them on the end of a stick. Damn, it caught me off guard. I, I'll next, next so week- It's kind of like pitch, you kind of pitch I'll give it, it I'll give it proper demonstration, but yeah. Yeah, you can, it, you, so this way I'm talking about, you can get it without, just knock that, you know, all the pollen will get knocked right into the bottle cap. I'm saying if you, if you yeah. still have any kind of pollen fear, earlier I was saying don't, have too much pollen fear unless you got a lot of wind going you know as long as you have don't have direct fans you know if you're if your male plants are not <laughs> that's a great reason not to have direct fans on your well even for her for possible hermaphrodite flowers you know that's a that's a thing that you know direct fans all over the tops of the flowers can <laughs> definitely have a lot more chance of spreading pollen right yeah. but uh Anyway, yeah, that's what I do is I collect it with the, the, the bottle cap on the end of the chopstick and the, and the end of another chopstick. And I, I promise next week I'll, I'll, I'll get a male plant and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll demonstrate it. But that's it's cool. easy. It's not bad. It's, it's simple. I mean, anybody can do it. And basically, I, I just use it fresh. You can also just store it on the counter for a week and it, it'll be fine when it's dry, you know what I mean? It's fine sort of 
as long as there's no direct fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you don't have to write. But I'm just saying that once it's dry, it, it'll store at room temperature for at least a week, but not that much longer. It starts to go bad. But what will kill it really fast is moisture. So if you're worried, if you think a plant has dropped pollen and you don't know, and you're paranoid about tracking it around and kicking it back up and, oh, shit, I don't want to turn the fans back on because I might have dropped a bunch of pollen over here because that's definitely possible, right? Um, the thing to do then is to wet everything down, you know, is to use mist everything with water because the water will yeah water will can it will can it that that's <laughs> then then no pollen fear then forget it you know then you're that's then a you're great tip. That, i mean that right there people all over the world when they hear this are gonna go yeah oh it's cool way to, i can yeah i can actually try yeah. to breed maybe you know i'm not gonna be scared well, yeah yeah that's pollen. one of the things is don't have a lot of pollen fear you know take the males and uh stick them in the window the other thing is you can chop them way back, right? They don't need as much room, obviously. They can be cut back. They can be stuck to the side. Um, but, yeah, just don't put them under direct uh, fans uh, and watch them carefully. You know, you'll oh, see so when you they... cut them back so you've got live foliage at the bottom of the plant, so to speak, like you would cut back to re-veg a plant and then just yeah. let it redo it until you're ready to use it again and let it uh, grow no, uh, pollen not so much for that, but maybe just right oh, away in the beginning. So, so if you say you have a crop of, of seedlings, a bunch of different ones, and as the males are showing just as a way of uh, uh, making so that they don't, uh, so that females can get more light and stuff like that, just start chopping back the males. Uh, but then it may not be a great idea if you want to observe their structures and all that. I'm just saying that, you know, they could be put to the side. They don't need the right. direct light. You've already the females can be moved to the to the middle, and uh, and stuff like that. The males don't need, uh, but but also they could be they could be yeah they could be cut back as you say to to stall there, which is usually a good idea because most males are very often, or at least twenty five or thirty percent of the males are taller already and larger than the rest of the crop. You know, it's one of the things they, they do. <laughs> so they can. Because yeah, you don't want them to. I mean, are you going to only use them when it's a male? Now, here's, a, now here's something I, I, I'm going to say I have no clue to the answer to this question. They say never ask a question you don't know the answer to, but I, uh, I'm i going to ask you one now. What? So, um, how, how can you keep, can you keep males or once they do the pollen sacs, you know, I, uh, you know, you mean like you go through that. What what happens can, in the process of the male in the future? You know, or you can much? clone them. You can clone a male. I mean, you can oh, keep males okay. as as clones, just like you can with females. Yeah, sure. And okay. In fact, it's a, in fact it's a really good idea if you because progeny testing is basically the best way forward to figure out what males are the best. You know what I mean? You can look at them and you can choose them for a number of visual traits but to really know especially you know well not all it depends on how the plants were bred not all seed batches you know that do the males absolutely need to be progeny tested i shouldn't say that across the board but a lot of times with males you know especially if they're the product of a couple of hybridizations recent you know multiple hybrids <laughs> then the males probably should be uh, progeny tested. You know, what I mean, they probably should be you check and see which ones are going to breed 
the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a good way. It's a good way forward. You don't. You don't want to make uh, mistakes with males, especially if you're going to save them like that as as clones and continue continue to breed them. Well, I guess I was also looking at what's the longevity of a male that you're going to use to get pollen from and breed with. That's that's kind of what I was asking. Oh, and I didn't praise if it. you well, if you don't take the clone from it, it's just going to flower and and. And, that's what I. That's what I was asking. It's one time thing. You get the yeah. pollen, and it's going to be done. Yeah. Unless you clone it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So you would clone it a little early too. Would you want to clone it before it flowered and it, it had to? You know. Pretty early. Um, when plants are seedlings and they're starting to flower, they can usually be uh, rooted really easily, uh, even yeah. when they're starting to show sex pretty well. They'll right. they'll, they'll regenerate faster. Uh, because they're making roots really quickly at the same time. The, the whole uh, <clears throat> rooting process kicks most plants, and then there's some variation in genetics there, you know, depending on the genes. If, if you're super, uh, in, a lot of indica genetics will maybe slow the regeneration process. They can be okay. you know, reluctant to regenerate. I think all this would make a lot of people out there wanting to try this a little more comfortable. That's why I wanted to go. I think every I think we questions because you know, man, it's it's so I think it's uh, the best way forward. I mean, Steve was saying you think there's a a, a future in in breeding and yeah. oh my gosh, of course there is. It's 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 the way forward for everything, and especially if we all really start uh, doing it, everyone starts uh, participating and and it becomes a. If all the the farmers, the local, you know, start breeding to to match their t terroir and stuff, as Frenchie was saying, you know, uh, that's going to be fantastic. And I think we're well, already starting. After, after fifteen years, you now, buddy of yours from Overgrow, you and him might be involved in a major seed uh, development uh, project. Isn't that cool? Fantastic! Amazing. <laughs> Totally awesome, man. It's, uh, I mean, that's why I, I was saying we've just really scratched the surface, you know, just imagining what, what can be done with cannabis. Those, it's just in the last, and there, a lot has changed in 25 years. I mean, there's been tremendous oh, amount yeah. of progress already, and only by a couple, of, a relative handful of underground breeders and stuff like that, you know, basically. And now I think with a greater interest of everybody. And I really think that it's become a lot, uh, as I say, I wouldn't say easier, but I'd say a lot um, more likely to, to get somewhere in a few short generations without a great deal of frustration. You don't have to go through five, six generations to stabilize something with any decent kind of THC level, <laughs> like you might have had to do in the 70s when you had first crossed an indica with a sativa. Um, and then, you know, THC levels in the few generations thereafter were all over the place. Kind of like I was making the analogy the other night about the Macintosh apple, you know, it's kind of like that. It's like maybe seeds off the Macintosh might not be so good, but five or six generations down after you, you know, then you can, you can get a nice apple pretty easily. And that's where we're at now with cannabis genet genetics is that it's, you know, it's definitely, not only is it e easier now to really 
to get somewhere, but everybody really ought it. I think I, I feel like everybody really ought to start playing along. <laughs> it's time. It's almost as if the plant itself is uh, just asking us to do it too. It really goes along with uh, you know, organic gardening, growing practices, and everything. That whole that whole thing of adaptability to your environment, you know, to your growing skills, your particular special needs, and everything. It's just <laughs> pretty exciting. We're gonna we've just we're gonna see a lot of cool stuff. Anyway, sorry for ranting on, Steve, but. <laughs> it's been great to be on the show. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for all that uh, do, doing with me and Steve. I'm going to pass it to you. I see you want you've been unmuting, so you want to talk. So here you go, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. What What have you been up to there, Roger? So. Oh, so you give it right back to me after I've been talking the whole time. Oh <laughs> uh, well, fighting with my old lady. Hold on. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, no, not really. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I just trying to get through things, uh, running the forum and and um, trying to get things set up. Uh, you know, I'm gonna go for the uh, fall harvest kind of thing this year because the way thing I've been waiting on lumber for a long time to. Uh, I got new infrastructure. I'm been supposedly I was gonna have the lumber on uh, in September, but my buddy. My best buddy, uh, Will, up in Tennessee, who we have a, a business uh, doing uh, uh, rustic furniture, and we get log slabs, big log slabs, and stuff like that. And, and uh, uh, he was going to bring me a bunch of bunch of uh, lumber down to build my infrastructure, get my tool shed, and then allow me to do all the ends of my greenhouse and all. And and he got crushed between a a, a truck and a and a, um, a rollback or a van and a rollback. So um, I'm waiting on him. He, uh, he's back, you know, in force right now. And uh, he's, he's uh, getting ready to bring me my lumber, which is going to allow me to build all my infrastructure, you know, uh, because I got a ton of uh, pine. He just, he's milled me uh, a whole trailer full of uh, pine um, lumber to build my sheds and um, everything I need to, you know, build my new aquaponics setup. So uh, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting. Uh, it's been, it's raining this week. We had beautiful summer weather last week at 86 to 90 degrees. And, and now this week it's going to rain with thunderstorms and all every day. So other than that, um, not doing a whole lot. Just, uh, uh, I was able to just uh, cultivate a couple of small, um, um, Strawberry Kush and Blue Dream plants. So I got a little bit of medicine now, and that's pretty cool. Um, I got a couple experiments coming up, but nothing to really talk about other than that. I just had a good time being on the show with some great guests tonight, and I wish that uh, I really wish that um, uh, Breeder Steve would have, you know, well, he's in Colombia. There's nothing to say about it other than the man was in Colombia on the phone. So, you know, to even be able to talk to him, I think, is a miracle of modern science. You know, I just wish we could have been able to have better communications with him because I think he had a lot of killer information, you know, from what we, you know, I could hear. I don't know about you guys. I struggled through that. And then Drew was awesome. You know, he's got a million different concepts. So, you know, I, I like that because that's how my brain runs, at, you know, 25-7. 
you know. So it's been pretty cool. I see he's still over there. I don't know if he's listening. He's, he's kind of quiet. Yeah. Everybody can uh, unmute and chime in now, man. It's uh, you know, we're we're into the uh, cocktail hour now. All right. Well, thanks for the kudos. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, I loved it. It was inspiring to hear somebody that thinks, yeah, I'm, so I'm not trying to kiss your butt or nothing, but you do think a lot about, like I think, about a lot of things. And it was, yeah, it was some great it was stuff. It was thanks interesting what you said. Yeah. This is the coolest show I've ever been on. So I, I really <laughs> learned so much. Thank you, Steve and Marty. Yeah, Mr. Green Jeans, that was some cool shit right there. And Breeder, <laughs> that was amazing. That was. I got my mic all jacked up here. Sorry. Uh, yeah, that, that was amazing stuff there. Sorry. <laughs> I Thank flipped you. up my microphone. Yeah, this is a great show. I learned a lot tonight. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, Any anytime, well, even if you just want me to sit here. <laughs> I wanted to also a uh, quick plug. Uh, we, uh, Josh and I from Dutch Blooms are throwing the Science of Regenerative uh, Aquaponic Cultivation course, which will be held on July uh, 16th uh, through 20th. Uh, <laughs> and then in, in, in Ouroboros Farms. Um, you can find the information on that at regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. Uh, and um, you can also uh, we'll have information up on there and uh, hopefully tomorrow um, or worst case this weekend on orborosfarms.com uh, it, it's a little bit expensive it's uh, I think 2500 for the for the five days but it is with Elaine Ingram, uh, Dr. Susan Wainwright, Chris Trump, Dr. Faust, myself uh, Ken Armstrong and we're still working on a couple of other speakers as well for the evening session so you definitely That's incredible. Miss it. So you got Dr. Lane to commit for sure. Yep. So that was great. Yep. So we got her. She's going to be doing a three-day course on microbes in both soil and aquatic food webs. Uh, so it's going to be really quite the experience and definitely something you're not going to miss. And then we're going to cap it all off with a nice big party on Saturday. So uh, you're definitely going to want to come down. Even if you can't afford to come to the other class, definitely come out on Saturday and come party with us. So thanks a lot. I'm going to be um, calling Southwest Airlines tomorrow. <laughs> to see if I can make the party. Yeah. All righty. I'll well, fly on the hope you don't crash in a mountain flight all the way out there. If you guys uh, want to keep talking a minute, you're welcome to. I'm going to uh, make myself some food real quick because I'm about to keel over. But, um, yeah, if, if you guys still want to talk for a little bit longer, I can leave the, the stream up for a little bit. Why not? We can talk. If you want some people, we got anybody in chat? Is anybody monitoring that, Steve, before oh, yeah. you leave? Dogo says hi. Brain Grow. Uh, Jessica O. Oh. Tell Brain Grow to log in. We can talk to him. Hogmaster. Tell Hogmaster to log in so we can talk to him. Yeah, so, well, I think they all have come and gone over the course of the evening. So, Alrighty. Um, yeah, I'll leave you guys to it, unless, unless you guys are all running as well. I'm we'll I'm out. Well, go ahead. All right. Go, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it's good. I gotta go. Good night, because I'm. Oh, okay. I'm my, my, I'm my friend here, and he, he he's playing it. Can you hear him playing the outro over here? He's like, right. I'm with the electric guitar. Thanks, but. Well, why, why don't thanks, you play us out? Yeah, oh, I know he is. Tell him, hey, here he is. <laughs> I'm here with the, my friend Doc Fred. Yeah. Doing the outro right yeah, here. The outro. Hey, what was it?
little Pink Floyd. All right, everybody, thanks for watching. <laughs>